When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. I'm in uh, Jacksonville Beach today and uh, enjoying the Florida lifestyle between AEW activities. Busy week for us here. Uh, you know, we had our had our, our show this week, uh, Dynamite this week, and now on Saturday, there's, everybody's listening probably knows, we have our pay-per-view all out, also from uh, Daly's Place. It's kind of become our home field. And uh, I, I kinda, I'll be honest with you, I've never experienced anything where we've had I've done this many shows in one location in my career that I can recall anyway. Uh, and we're kind of used to it. It is that home field advantage. You know where everything is, you know, where you're going to park, you know, where you're going to dress the whole nine yards. So, uh, I'm excited about Saturday night. I hope that we can hit a home run and folks like our show. And if you're, you know, you can watch it on the bleacher report or fight app, if you're out of the country and things of that nature. So, uh, it should be fun. So it's a, it's a pretty packed card. Uh, and I think it's going to be a, a fun show. It's going to be a lot of things. I'm curious to see how, how styles match up. For example, I'm very curious to see how MJF will, how his, his chemistry will interface with John Moxley, for example. Uh, and cause that's, I'm sure that match is going to close the show. I'm assuming it will for the world title. So it's going to be a good week. And I, I enjoy being down here and enjoying the weather and the scantily clad ladies that are Hanging out. <laughs> what do you think about the, uh, mimosa mayhem match or whatever they're calling it with Jericho and Cassidy? Well, you know, I've never, we've never had a mimosa mayhem match. There's no precedent for it. It's I'm curious to say the very least, uh, I mean, here's the thing you got Chris Jericho in it. So that should, uh, uh, alleviate, uh, eliminate a lot of concerns that it's too gimmicky. Uh, you know, somebody's going to go into the, uh, mimosa pool, uh, of one, you know, that's part of the deal. So, uh, how that works out is how it works out. But if Jericho's in a match and he created this match, he essentially booked this match. Uh, I have confidence. It'll be good. It'll be entertaining. You know, the, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts and the, and the hard ass stuff will be 
Moxley and MJF, uh, among other things. I'm, I'm curious to see how the uh, uh, Hangman Page and Kenny Omega title defense against FTR is going to be. Uh, I think Tully Blanchard being a part of that uh, presentation is good for FTR because it not only will help them on, on camera, I know it's helping them off camera. And uh, that's important for guys that are still evolving. You know, even though those guys have been around a long time, they, 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 they're a really solid team. Uh, they can, we all can learn. And I think Tully being there and being a positive influence, and he really is a positive influence, uh, great knowledge, great experiences. So, uh, there's an interesting match on the card. You know, they say styles make fights, Conrad, and, and we'll see how these guys interface and how they, how it works out. But I'm, I'm very hopeful that our show on Saturday night will be uh, a success and that folks will give us a shot, check it out, enjoy it. And, uh, and we'll let the cards fall where they may, man. I'm really excited about the, uh, Omega hangman FTR match. I'm a huge FTR fan. I think this is going to be, I mean, Kenny Omega has a reputation for bringing it for big matches and hangman Adam page is probably one of the more underrated performers on the roster. That's going to be one hell of a match, but the match that Tony's probably looking forward to the most that's his girl, Thunder Rosa taking on Sheeta. Uh, this is sort of a fun thing to see you guys doing something with the NWA. I couldn't have called that. Me neither. And I think it's a great idea. That's Tony Khan thinking outside the box. I thought Billy Corgan uh, did a great job with the, uh, voiceover on the Thunder Rosa piece. Uh, it reminds me of back in the territory days where a, a promoter, uh, like Bill Watts would say, Hey, I need Andre or I need dusty or, or whatever it may be. And the cooperation with him would come from, uh, the NWA, for example, in this case, and then too, as a matter of fact, uh, except for Andre was a good senior thing, but it shows cooperation can be done. And it's not that closed minded mindset to where, uh, like WWE has, where they're the only game in town. The fans know that too much, there's too much education. Our fans are smart people. And they understand that there's more than one flavor of ice cream and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that uh, going forward, you know, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully can do more things with, uh, those promotions. And the other deal is this, you know, we, I think we've done a nice job in bringing some of these kids in that have got potential Ricky Starks, for example. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a discovery. He's a find. He's a kid that can talk. He's very athletic. He's young and he's hungry. He's motivated. So guys like that, you know, uh, uh, Eddie, uh, Kingston, I I'm a big Eddie Kingston fan. I think Eddie Kingston is a, a, a very, uh, special talent and if how he works out as a manager or, or a wrestler or whatever he's going to be, uh, I don't have any concerns because I think he's that talented. He could do about anything he wants to do. And he, the same deal, Conrad, he's a guy that's been working his ass off for little, little to no money on the Indies, the uncertainty of working on the Indies is still existent and he's got a break. He's got a chance and I'm happy for it. I'm happy for those guys like that, that they get a chance to maybe live their dream, accumulate a little bit of money, uh, make it easier on themselves to pay their bills, et cetera, et cetera. Like any, any other person, you know, your job's a job, man. So, uh, I, I think we're doing a nice job there, but I like the NWA element. It was a surprise to me when it happened. And a pleasant, pleasant surprise, by the way. And Thunder Rosa is a, is a very, she's a very skilled, uh, wrestler, male or female, doesn't matter her gender. She's very skilled. And I think it'll push Sheeta, uh, who has had her moments of being 
absolutely outstanding at times, but she, a lot of people wrestle Conrad. It's like a ball, a ball player or a ball team. You play up to your competition. And sometimes, you know, I, I, my sooner sometimes play a, a team that's not very good, a directional school. And they, you don't get the effort that you get when they play Texas or, or uh, the performance that you get when you play a, a you know, an Oklahoma state or, or, or a big out of league game. Uh, so I, I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be a, a fun, fun scenario, fun show. And uh, I, I like, I like the fact that we're doing something with Billy and his group because I don't know what their future is. I know their TV show is kind of in limbo right now, I think. And I may be speaking out of school. I don't know all the details of that. But uh, any promotion that we can work with in a positive way that increases awareness for wrestling is a good thing. I was really excited to see you guys have fans again. I know that there's been a lot of debate about when's the right time and is it too soon and all that, but Lord, it made a big difference on TV. I really enjoyed the dynamite viewing a lot more with fans there. I mean, I know that's sort of simple and easy to say, but it feels like something that has been forever since we've seen it. Yeah. It's months and months. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was fun. We had like 500 fans. I think that facility seats, maybe 5,000, I'm guessing, uh, Daly's place, the amphitheater, the fact that it's outdoors, even though it's covered, uh, is a good thing for the circulation and ventilation and all those things. Uh, they, uh, Raphael Morphy and his team did a hell of a job in, uh, selecting the seats that were, were usable and the seats that would stay empty to, uh, observe social distancing. Uh, we did everything that we ha- that w- has been recommended to do, uh, for events like that, where you have ticketed events, uh, except maybe the Republican convention didn't, I didn't see too many masks there, but which I don't understand. I really don't understand it. I don't think it makes any sense for, and I'm not a, getting into politics. So I guess I am, but not much. Uh, you, you can't, uh, the mask and social distancing, things of that nature should not be a political agenda. It's just common sense. So, uh, I, I think that we did, we did everything, all our due diligence. Uh, we were, we did, we followed all the guidelines, all the rules. So, uh, you know, hopefully that'll be the thing we continue. I know that the, I think on that first night that we had tickets, that we had fans there that, uh, I believe somebody told me that all the seats sold out in like 20 minutes or something. Or maybe quicker. It was just almost immediate. So the the demand is there, and you you know, being a, a businessman, it's the law of supply and demand. The demand's there. If we can follow the guidelines and be smart, uh, we got more room in the in dailies to put more people. And that's not to say that somewhere along the way, if we wanted, if we want to go to the uh, Coliseum, the old Jacksonville uh, arena, it's on the same grounds, same parking area. So, uh, we might be able to do that and, and still do social distancing the whole nine yards. But I think the, there was a source of pride that AEW was the first major group in our genre to re- have live fans return to, to that, to that regard, other than friends and family or talents or what have you. I think that was a, that was kind of a good thing. So that was a real team effort. Like I said, Raphael Morphy and Tony Khan pulled that deal together and, and, uh, and it, it worked. And you're right. It, for us as announcers, it certainly was a 
a very good sounding backdrop. We needed it and uh, it helped us a lot. Well, we're going to help you to a help, a heaping helping of clash of the champions three today. That's our topic. Uh, we hope you guys all tune in to all out this weekend. Check out JR live on pay-per-view. I know I will be uh, bleacher report live and anywhere else you enjoy AEW podcasts. Uh, this is a no brainer. I downloaded the app. I cast it onto my home theater screen. I'm going to have some friends over, have a few drinks. It's going to be a good time, but maybe we can kick the good times rolling today. Right now, clash of the champions three. This is the very first fall brawl. Uh, the most recent major Jim Crockett promotion show was the great American bash from Baltimore, Maryland. We would see the midnight express defeat the fantastics to win the United States tag team titles. The Garvins and the Road Warriors and Steve Williams would defeat Kevin Sullivan, Mike Rotunda, Al Perez, the Russian Assassin, and Ivan Koloff in a Tower of Doom match. Barry Windham would retain the U.S. title over Dusty Rhodes, and Ric Flair would retain the world title by blood stoppage over Lex Luger. We've talked a little bit about this show in the past, but two things I want to zero in on before we move on. The United States Tag Team Titles. I thought it was a beautiful belt. I love the red straps. I love the design, but I didn't quite get it. Why did we need two sets of tag belts here? A world and a U.S. I, I get it in the singles division because there's a ton of singles wrestlers, but did we think we had enough tag teams to really need two sets of tag belts? It's certainly arguable. Certainly arguable. No doubt. Uh, you know, obviously the thought was that there, there was enough tag teams, or maybe that was a, a, a little building block to add more tag teams into the, uh, the equation to the rotation, shall we say? Uh, and the fact that, you know, you had a match there with midnight and the fantastics, uh, you knew it was going to be a great TV match. So, and it was, so I think, uh, the thought was let's build the tag team division. We'll add another title. It's a very subjective situation. Uh, in hindsight, did we need it? Probably not, but, uh, were we disappointed in the fact that we had, uh, we, we tried to, we spread ourselves too thin and there, and the midnight and the fantastics didn't deliver. Absolutely not. The other thing I wanted to ask about was, uh, the tower of doom match. Is this the worst gimmick match in Jim Crockett history? I mean, Jim didn't usually try JCP didn't usually try a lot of crazy gimmicks. I mean, Certainly we had some big ideas like war games and Starcade. I mean, those are all Dusty's ideas, but you know what I mean? The promotion didn't have a lot of silliness. This tower of doom feels like the first silly step. I agree. Uh, it was, uh, it was very convoluted. One of the announcers have to stop and do a tutorial on how you win, how the, the rules of engagement, and you do that to a little bit of an uncomfortable length of time. And we did, uh, it's, it may not be the best idea. It looked great on a, on a, on a graphic. It looked interesting on a, on a poster type thing, but it certainly wasn't, uh, it wasn't the best idea that we ever had. No doubt about that. Hear that airplane going over. I do. You're right there on the beach, baby. Yeah, man. So, uh, uh, so I thought it was. Look, you know, we're always willing to try it and maybe it surprises us and it became real good. If you, if the match had been great, then, uh, you and I would be talking about it in a different tone. It wasn't a great match. I know Kevin Sullivan had a lot to do with the creation of that match. He liked matches like that. 
different things, you know, Tower of Doom, the, 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 the things that cast a dark pall over a, a match or scenario that put the baby faces in more jeopardy, which is not a bad theory whatsoever. But uh, the match didn't deliver up to expectations. And I'm trying to think, were there many more of those? Uh, Tower of Doom matches? No, I mean, we would try it later with WCW and the whole uh, uncensored. You weren't there at the time, but they had like 38 heels against Savage and Hogan. You know, it was everybody. It was all the horsemen, and it was uh, the former Zeus and Brian Pillman and Bane from Batman. I mean, just silly shit. But yeah, but let's talk about what's leading to that desperation. And maybe that's not the right word. But this does feel like maybe the wackiest of Dusty Rhodes booking. And a lot of people would point to, well, why is he doing that? Business is down. You know, this show we're covering today happened in September of 1988, September 7th to be exact. Uh, so as we're talking about it, what will it be? This coming Monday will be the uh, one of the anniversaries. Anyway, the point is there's lots of rumors swirling that, man, Crockett is not doing as well as they thought they were financially. And maybe they're even talking to Turner about buying the promotion. And that gets as far along as they're even interviewing certain talent. And we know that the sale is going to become complete in October, the following month. Uh, and I think that the official like founding date of world championship wrestling, when, when it's all done is October 11th, 1988. And so here we are just over a month away from that. It does feel like dusty thinks, Hey man, war games was a shot in the arm in 86 or 85, whatever it was. And, and we took it. We took a whole great American bash tour around and did stadiums. Maybe this tower of doom could be the next idea. Do you think that was the thinking behind it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, uh, the war games was a great idea and it was that quest to always find something new, something fresh and looking for something that uh, we needed a hit record. And, uh, it, that was not a hit record. And I think, you know, Dusty was, was multitasking, you know, uh, he was, he was trying to come up with all these ideas. He had a lot of uh, talents that were very, uh, high maintenance, uh, that, you know, was need, they had, sometimes they were hard to please. You want your talents to buy in with everything you're doing as best you can. That's why all the great promoters always, uh, relied on their top talents, uh, for ideas. That's why Chris Jericho is so successful and has helped uh, AEW because, you know, he, he comes up with a lot of his own stuff and, uh, and, and so he buys into it. And the thing about that is that whomever comes along with Chris in that, in the, in those matches, uh, they get the value of working with him. They get the value of increasing their brand. And, and so they buy in and they're all for it. I'm not so sure that there were times there when business goes down, Conrad, it's inevitable. I've seen it in time and time again, over my 40 plus years in the wrestling business, the eyes all go to the booker. So whether the booker deserves all the credit for the great stuff, or he deserves all the credit for the bad stuff probably is there's somewhere in between that. But I think, uh, I think Dusty was kind of getting burned out, you know, uh, the, the negativity, the negative vibes, the fact that Crockett finds out that he's, he, he's running out of money. He finds out that he's deep in debt that he didn't, and he wasn't aware of, uh, I know I, my, uh, 
my conduit there was uh, Barnett, Jim Barnett, uh, you know, because you could ask him, you know, what was going on. He'll, he, if he was, if you're in one-on-one with him, he'll tell you, you know, oh my, my, when Crockett has no money, we've got to do something or we're not going to have jobs. So the something was that I think Barnett was a big influence in helping bring attention to Turner, that there was a business opportunity here. And, uh, and that bailed our ass out at least temporarily until then Turner finally bought the whole damn thing. So uh, I just think that's, uh, I think old dust was just, a, just, you know, he was working, he's working on top. He wasn't as young as he was the day before, obviously, uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. So I don't blame, you know, what's a dusty deal or dusty this. I don't see it that way, quite frankly, even though he's the booker and he's going to take the hit for things that aren't good. But it's, it's the same deal. You know, uh, Lawler and Jared had an interesting philosophy in Memphis and their territory that one guy would book it for six months and then the other guy would book it for six months. So they always had fresh ideas or fresher ideas and a different perspective. And it gave the fans a little, you know, a, a new coat of paint, a new, a new shine on the, on the same vehicle. And uh, that was all. I think that's what we were looking for there was we need to put a new coat of paint on this brand and will, will this help us get, uh, get things jump started again? And it didn't, unfortunately, you know, but it, it did work when we did the, the stadium shows are good. The, the, uh, war games I thought was a great concept, as I mentioned, but this just wasn't, wasn't that idea. And I know dusty was under immense pressure to get it. We need a hit dream. We need a hit. And, uh, the harder you try sometimes on a creative process, it's not free flowing. It's not coming naturally. It's coming because you got a gun to your head and that's not the best creative environment to operate in. There's a lot to unpack here with this whole story. I do want to circle back to dusty for a minute though. You know, that you, you sort of laid it out that in other territories, you mentioned Memphis, for instance, guys just had a shelf life where you can only sort of be in the, in the race car, in the hot seat, in the frying pan, whatever sort of analogy you want to draw to it. And then eventually you do need to just take a break and, and take a mental break from it and freshen up some ideas and, and bring a new approach to it and keep things new and fresh. And you often say on here, you know, what wrestling fans want is new. They want to see new matches. They want to see new moves. They want to see new storylines. They want to see new characters. They want to see new performers, whatever they like new. Is that, do you think the primary driver, do you think the pressures of being on, on top as well? I mean, dusty, you know, trying to wear both hats, so to speak of booking and performing, or do you think there's also just a chance that maybe dusty was resting on his laurels a little bit and wasn't evolving. I mean, you've often said, I heard you say this long before I knew you, a salesperson in his comfort zone is get, is getting out of business. They're going out yeah. of business. The idea is if you're in your comfort zone, you're not innovating, you're not trying new stuff, you're growing or you're dying. And that's right. It does feel like dusty had so many hits in a row that maybe he was resting on his laurels. And by the way, why wouldn't he, we've seen Vince McMahon do it. We've seen every major Eric Bischoff did it. Like we've got Goldberg. We've got the NWO. Why do we need to deviate? Well, when you quit innovating, you quit originating new ideas and just doing the same old, same old slowly, but surely you're going to do it to diminishing returns. And that feels a little bit like what they were doing here. And, and maybe it was loyalty to dusty from Jim Crockett, where he didn't feel like 
he could go to dusty and say, Hey, we need to take a break and let you just be a performer for a bit. Or what do you think about that? Hey man, let me give you a little life hack just in time for mother's day and father's day. I'm talking about paintyourlife.com. That's the place where you can get a gift that mom or dad will never forget. Real quick, do you remember what you got mom or dad last year for Mother's Day or Father's Day? Well, here's how you give a gift that they'll never forget. You find something that's meaningful, something that's personal. Maybe we're talking about their mom or dad who's no longer here. Maybe it's about a long-lost relative. Maybe it's about their favorite pet who's no longer with us. Maybe there was always this dream that mom and dad were going to vacation to some exotic tropical island, but they never quite made it there. Well, all of those dreams can become reality at paintyourlife.com. You simply upload those photos. You can even use a photo right out of your phone. They can even help you combine photos to create one unique memory. You'll pick the artist. You'll even pick the medium. Hey, do you want an oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even pick the frame. The whole process is less than five minutes to get started. You can get it in as little as two weeks, but along the way, you work hand in hand to ensure that the artist is nailing it. They're getting exactly what you wanted and you're going to get that reaction you wanted from mom or dad. I'm telling you, this has been a home run for me. I've used it for my mom, for my dad, for my father-in-law, for my cousin, for my wife. It's great for any occasion, but with mother's day and father's day right around the corner, how do we show the people who gave us everything that we really care? I don't think you can beat a meaningful gift like this from paintyourlife.com. And if you're looking to give the best and most meaningful gift you've ever given, paintyourlife.com can hook you up. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text R-O-S-S to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, I think that, uh, I think you make good points. Uh, I think the the whole behind the scenes scenario there at, at Jim Crockett Promotions was that, you know, Dusty was aware and late in the game, by the way, that, uh, they were in dire straits financially. Uh, you know, I remember Jimmy telling me that he found out from his accountant what, what their real status was because the accountant didn't want to tell Jimmy that you guys are spending too much money. You know, they had two airplanes. Uh, they, they were living the, the fast life. You know, you go out and run the West coast. Uh, well, let's just go instead of flying into your location and then getting in cars and driving the loop to San Diego and LA or what have you, you know, they were staying in Vegas, uh, and flying back and forth commuting on a private jet. Well, you know, and obviously that's not real judicious, but it's a good lifestyle. You know, it's, uh, the talents liked it, but they didn't know that how, how, uh, you know, delicate this financial situation was dusty. Finally, dusty found out right after Jimmy Crockett found out 
And so all of a sudden you got a certain lifestyle you're used to, you, you know, like a lot of wrestlers, you're living check to check, no matter how much money you make. I know some folks will have find that hard to believe, but it's just a fact of life. You, re, you read about all the time with professional athletes that, you know, they've had a good run, they had a good career, and then they're all of a sudden they're broke because they didn't, they didn't have a plan in place to either protect their money that they'd made or a plan to uh, perpetuate that income. So I, I think that he had a lot of pressure on him there and he took personal, it took it personally. And, uh, so that a lot of stress comes out of that deal. I know that the attitude, uh, around this time was much different than when I first went to work for Crockett. Uh, it was more, that's when the things were really rolling and, and things were doing well. And, uh, and everybody had a different mindset. There's a happier place, more positive place, but then, uh, then the creative hit the wall. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of ways you could say, how, how would you fix it? Well, you could let dusty take a time, you know, pay him and give him a, have, have him go on a sabbatical, you know, take six months off, take three months off, take some time off, significant time to regroup, to freshen your thinking, step back, look at it and let somebody else have the book. But that, that Dusty didn't feel comfortable doing that. And neither would Bill Watts. The thing about Watts was Watts had, he, he, he would change bookers. You know, when I worked for Bill and it was good for my education because I worked with a lot of different bookers, uh, you know, Bill Dundee, Ken Mantell, Dick Slater, uh, golly, you know, Ernie Ladd, of course. Uh, Buck Robley, a lot of guys. So, and, and Bill had no issues, uh, making a change. You know, it's like, it's like changing pitchers or changing quarterbacks or whatever. Uh, you, 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 you gotta have the courage to do that. And sometimes you gotta ruffle feathers and, uh, that wasn't the case there. So, uh, Watts did that. And, and the other thing about, you know, the fall resting on your laurels, I'll give you one real good example of that. When junkyard dog, who was the hottest baby face that we ever had in mid South. He was one that for a time was one of the hottest baby faces in the world. Uh, you know, having a, a powerful, strong African-American as your top baby face watch caught, caught a lot of grief from the white promoters about that. Uh, you know, it was just, a, you know, it was, it was a watch until I heard him tell a promoter one time, I said, my favorite color is green and he meant it. So that's why he had a black booker Ernie, and he had a top black baby face and, and dog. But when dog walked out and went to WWF at the time, uh, Bill was on this quest, no matter what we would all of his people close to him would say, uh, he was on a quest to replace the junkyard dog with another African American baby face. And it's not that easy. And people could see that's what we were trying to do. And that's why the guys like George Wells and Brickhouse Brown and on and on, uh, they were, they, they paled in comparison to JYD. And ironically, we had the guy in the territory that should have been the dog's replacement and Butch Reed, Butch Reed would have been perfect, seamless, big, powerful, great promo. He's over in the territory as a heel, but that just means he'll be loved even more, the more you're hated in, in this crazy business. But Bill tried the same thing and, uh, just was hell bent on it. The same, that's how we hired sting and, and, uh, and, uh, and Helwig. He, Bill wanted through his relationship with Ole Anderson, he wanted his own road warriors. So 
sometimes promoters just they copy. They look back. I saw a thing on, on social media the other day where cowboy was doing a, uh, a vignette at the campfire as the midnight rider. Well, hell Dusty had done the midnight rider, uh, in mid Atlantic successfully. Uh, but people knew this, it's it, just too much alike. It just, it, it paled in, in what it should have been. It was just, it was just a thing where, well, this is not new. I've seen Dusty do this. Right. And, and Bill's theory was, well, the old school, well, you know, it's regional TV. So everybody hasn't seen it, et cetera, et cetera. But when Dusty goes on TBS with the midnight rider, you kind of, kind of jump the shark there, you know? So. Uh, anyway, I, I, promoters are creatures of habit and bookers are creatures of habit. And when you combine a booker and the top, uh, as, as you, your top baby face or one of them, uh, you're flirting with disaster. And, uh, I, I think that's kind of where we were. Dusty just didn't want to give up his post. He wanted it. He was fiercely loyal to himself and his concepts and his ideas because he had had great success as a booker. And he thought continue to do what he was doing was good enough. Unfortunately, it wasn't. So, you know, Jimmy in hindsight would have been maybe better off and giving Dusty a sabbatical, not getting rid of him. Uh, he could be a consultant or, you know, and work, you know, talk to Jimmy about the booking and things of that nature. But getting another booker would have been an interesting idea because it would give everybody a different set of ideas, a different, different theories, different marriages, different matches. Uh, but we didn't get that far. We didn't, it didn't, didn't happen that way. So it was a really interesting time behind the scenes. And many of us were not aware of the, you know, I, I'm new on the team there. You know, I'd been a, a watch guy for all those years. And then you go to a company that's uh, not financially solvent. They're, they're unstable. And that's scary as hell for a guy like me. Uh, you know, just get a new job think, Oh my God, what am I going to do if this doesn't work out? Cause you know, it's not too many places to go to work at that point in time that you can make a living. So, uh, that was, that's, that's where we were. Everybody was uneasy. It's a very uncomfortable time in my professional career without a doubt. One of the things I've always been fascinated with is, is that relationship between Jim Crockett and dusty. Do you think that, I mean, clearly in hindsight, it feels like Jim did the entire company and certainly his family a disservice by being so buddy, buddy with the talent, specifically dusty Rhodes, or at least that's my take. Do you think that that was a detriment, their closeness than that? He wasn't able to sort of treat it like a quarterback or a pitcher. Like you said, Bill Watts would. Yeah, it was. And the other aspect of that deal too, the big, uh, uh, the big elephant in the room was named Rick flair. Right. And, and, and Jimmy had great respect and, and admiration for Rick because, you know, Rick was a, essentially a homegrown mid Atlantic guy. Uh, you know, he came from Minnesota as we all know, you know, it better than most, but he became this, this, this legendary figure, uh, by working with all those great old timers that were in mid Atlantic at that time and starting out the tag with rip Hawk and different guys, uh, learning his, learning his trade. So he had that conflict as well because dusty wasn't a, 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 uh, a manufactured mid Atlantic guy. He came in as the booker on, you know, the, the old deal where he came in to book Starcade, I think it was, but see, that's the same concept Jimmy should have used later. He brought dusty in to book a big card. He liked what he saw and he hired him. So, uh, that's at least how I remember the story. So 
I think there's a, that was a, Flair was another issue that Jimmy had to handle because, you know, they lived in Charlotte together. They went to dinner together. They were buddies. They, they had fun. They're both, you know, social guys. So, uh, I, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, the, the, the nature factor was also had to be handled well. And for some reason, then instead of it being a galvanizing thing where Rick and dusty were, uh, were allies, I think they were still allies, but loosely and not as much as they could have been because, you know, dusty loved the Lakers and are the, the or dusty was a Celtics guy. Right. And, and Nate loved the Lakers and that thing kind of became a work shoot. Uh, you know, this little things like that rivalries, you know, one guy buy a Mercedes, another guy buy a bigger Mercedes and they, and maybe neither one of them at the time could afford it quite frankly, or that well, I remember, I remember when they got on a, uh, uh, a fur coat thing, you know, they got, they both bought fur coats. One bought a fur coat. So the other guy had to buy a bigger fur coat. You know, it's just, it was the wrong competition. Whereas if they had been, we had better leadership, quite frankly, and both guys were put in a room and the owner says, here's what I have to have from you guys. Right. And you got to tell me that you can make this happen. And if you can't, I've got to do something else. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to ruffle the feathers there. And then of course, then Dusty gets this great run, uh, where the company really starts uh, doing well, these outdoor shows and all that stuff. And look, another thing about those outdoor shows. I don't think Jimmy would have ever had the David Allen Coe's and, and the, and these country stars, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like country music was a mass appeal, but Dusty liked country music and Jimmy acquiesced. So it had expenses, staging, talent fees, all those things. And I know the talents used to talk about that, you know, well, we'd, we'd get a bigger payoff if we didn't have to pay David Allen Coe right. type thing. So I, I just think that that would have been a step that I, if, if in hindsight, again, I don't have any crystal ball or any, you know, can't, can't tell the future, but I would have probably had, uh, I would have had a meeting and we'd have cleared the air and we'd have got everybody on the same page. Cause look, let's look at it. Conrad, you got two of the brightest minds, uh, and, and, and to the greatest performers yep. in the history of wrestling, but let's look at it this way. Both guys were very much more effective booking their own stuff than they were booking, sometimes booking other people's stuff. And, uh, that's an art form to be objective and, and, uh, and, and to, you know, to, to clear the air and to start to be objective here. And we weren't, and look, we weren't building any new young stars. They tried with Sting. They tried with Luger, uh, but to get them over the hump, you know, Sting got hurt. Uh, it wasn't his fault. And, uh, but you know, Luger was a, a great, he looked like, he looked like a million bucks or more on an eight by 10, but he, he could never replace the quality of the matches that dusty or flair had. And that was who they were. That's they were running with him. So, uh, I, I think that it was a matter of communication and it, it, it demanded tough decisions that were not made. And as a result of that, uh, the company really became unstable and, and really very delicate. There's so much to unpack about this. I'm sure we'll talk about it another time. Let's get back on track though. As we mentioned, we're coming off the great American bash pay-per-view, but along with that came the bash tour. Uh, and, and you just sort of alluded to the fact that we're, we're running a big tour in stadiums with country music artists. 
but we've also got all kinds of gimmick matches here. Cage matches, scaffold matches, war games matches. We're doing it all throughout the tour. And I assume we're doing these crazy special attractions, trying to do whatever we can to breathe new life into this and try to sell some tickets because it does feel like the company sliding pretty quickly here. Do you think dusty was relying too much on gimmicks here, or do you need it? If you're going to do a tour like this, no a gimmicks, uh, the gimmicks became more of a focal point, but they didn't have the substance behind them to make the gimmick special. And in other words, uh, the long-term booking, the long-term direction, uh, was, uh, somewhat scarce. And so when you have, uh, you have that scenario, Conrad, uh, instead of having a long, a good arcing storyline that can culminate at these big outdoor stadiums, you know, e- either at these outdoor stadium events, not unlike WrestleMania or, or any other major pay-per-view, uh, I've always been the philosophy that your major stuff has to be the blow off or the debut one of the two. You can't have the eighth match or the seventh match or whatever it may be in a program, uh, at a major pay-per-view. It's gotta be something either you're blowing it off. You finally got the end of your road. We're culminating this storyline with this, or we're starting this storyline with this. It's to me, it's simple in that regard. Uh, but you know, when you didn't have long-term planning and you're trying, you're just, you're throwing matches together with some really great talents. But the stories weren't told well enough to get my interest, no matter what the gimmick match was. So you try to steal one, as they say, and it's the old uh, term hot shotting. You know, it's that's what it was. I remember Watts had a, we had we were promoting twenty man first blood battle royals. So the the only the way you won was to not bleed. So to to to, to get eliminated meant nineteen guys were going to bleed. And when you did that several nights in a row, you can imagine the mo- the mood of the talent. Their heads are sore. They're, they're, they're cutting themselves. You know, they're, they're, it's just not good, man. It's just not good. But we did that and I was a party to it. Uh, didn't like it. Uh, I thought a one-time deal, you know, I like got the Superdome or something. Oh, that might've been a hell of a hit, but to do it in around the loop, not so much. So I think that's what it was. Hot shotting really being in a desperate sort of state to find what's going to stick. There's something out of this whole crazy maze of booking and these gimmick matches. What's going to, what's going to, uh, what are the fans going to latch on to? And, uh, but that's, that's a fault, a trait of virtually every promoter that I've ever worked with or studied. They all get to a point where they, their creative bucket gets a little bit dry and they've got to figure out a way to get hot shot, something sensational. And we got to get something really big and going, you know, Dusty got in trouble doing that same thing with the spike in the eye with the road warriors. Right. He went, he went too far. Uh, you know, the, the concept of getting, having a hot angle is one thing and there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. However, uh, you, you, you got to, you got to play by the rules and the rules of Turner at that time was this ain't going to work. And, uh, and he, he put himself in jeopardy by doing that, but hopefully that he would pop a rating and people would start watching again. Uh, and so it's just, it was a really a tough time financially and emotionally, you know, again, we, we sometimes factor out the fact that these performers are, are human beings and they, a lot of these guys, 
have families and they're not unlike anybody else listening today, uh, which we do appreciate, uh, that, you know, the, you got, you got bills to pay, you got kids to put in school, you know, you got a wife that you gotta, you gotta interface with and, 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 uh, and love and respect and so forth. But so a lot of guys have a lot, a lot of pressure on them. And as Conrad, you, you've been around this long enough now to know that sometimes we know of stories and fact that some wrestlers have lived well beyond their means, right? Thinking that the checks would never end. And so when guys saw the handwriting on the wall, that the checks are going to end if we don't make some changes and your lifestyle will have to be adjusted because you're not going to have the, the revenue, the cash flow coming in that you, you, you did here before. So it was a tough time for all of us. And I'm kind of glad that I wasn't really smartened up to how bad it was because, you know, I, I, I got caught up in that bullshit because I bought a home in Dallas. I asked Jimmy, is always say, are we good? Oh yeah. Business is great. So he said, I, I'd be, di- I'm, I'm going to be disappointed if you don't buy a home in Dallas. I think you're a smarter guy than that. Well, okay. So I bought a house in Dallas, uh, in the Plano, Plano, little suburb there. Not little anymore, but, and then when I went to sell it, when I went to work for Turner and moved to, they moved me to Atlanta, I had to sell that house. And I think I had to take about 20 grand to the close. Oh man. Yeah. My money. And I didn't have that kind of money to, to make that. I mean, I was down to my, <clears throat> Pardon me. I was down to not a lot, a lot of cash in the bank <clears throat> and pardon me. And I had a, had an ex-wife, I had child support, all that good stuff. Uh, you know, I lost my house, you know, I was already going through some tumultuous times in that regard, but I had no idea that it was as bad professionally as it was. And maybe I look back at that and think, well, man, that might've been a blessing in disguise because with all the other stuff that I had to deal with from a failed marriage, uh, and leaving my, my, my youngest daughter and all that stuff, uh, maybe I was better off not knowing. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Man, so much going on here. Um, as we said, we're sort of at the, the height of the insanity booking from dusty roads, smack dab in the middle of these rumors that, Hey, maybe Ted Turner's putting together a deal to buy Jim Crockett. How privy were you to the top level discussions going on about this sale? I mean, I know that once upon a time you helped broker the sale for Watts over to Crockett. Are you still in a, in the conversation when this potential sale to Turner's happening? No, not really. Uh, like I said, my conduit was, uh, Barnett, you know, Barnett loved the dirt. I love the dirt. He was that way. Uh, and he liked me, you know, we're both the native Oklahomans. Uh, he liked my work. You know, I was nice to him. Uh, uh, and I always respected him and a lot of guys didn't because he was gay, which is a weak excuse not to like somebody. I'll yeah. tell you folks who gives a shit. Yeah. And skin color sexual preference, 
man, I got, I got too much shit on my mind I'm living this life. And at my age, uh, you know, I want to live today. I don't care about your other issues. I, I, I care about your pain and your misery, but I don't have any dog in the hunt about your sexuality or your politics or any of those things. Uh, I know that's a strange bedfellow there. No pun intended, uh, but I don't care about that either. I've lost confidence in a lot of politicians because that's what they are. They're no longer public servants. It's all about big money and it's all about money and not about people. And that, that disturbs me to, to, to a large degree. But the only way when I got word of it, uh, I think Meltzer had some, Meltzer had some good inside stuff there that he would put in the observer. So you get a little hint here or there, uh, of what might be going on. And so, you know, I just went to the source because, you know, Barnett was close to Turner. Barnett had that long-term relationship with in Atlanta with TBS and Georgia championship wrestling over the years, uh, built a nice reputation there by and large. The only people going to knock Barnett are the people that, you know, that want to just share the business or whatever. Uh, you know, he was a good businessman in that regard more, more often than not. Uh, but he too would get same thing in, in Australia. He didn't, he didn't continue to evolve with the times, right? He kept using the same people. And, and, and over and over and over. See, he would admit that. So I, I, my, my information, my dirt came from uh, Jimsy and uh, he said, you know, I said, is this true? He said, uh, we were finding out more every day that Crockett's in really, uh, unsettled ground with his uh, finances. And, uh, he's, he's, he's actually discovering, uh, some bad news as it goes along as well. So the, the accountant not being forthcoming was horrible because like I said, you know, they're here, they're, they're buying jet fuel. Like it was, you know, ethyl. Yeah. Not just know? one jet, but two, they had two, two planes and, and then all these stadium tours, as you said, and you know, crazy musical acts and the, the big, the big office building in Dallas. And it just feels like, man, we're, uh, we're spending like madman, And, and perhaps some of that was just dusty's vision. Not that his vision was to bankrupt a company, but. I mean, he would tell you sometimes that we're going to be movie stars, right? Yeah. We're going to make movies. Uh, I heard that many times. We're going to make movies. Uh, and then Jimmy was to pick it up. We're going to make movies. Uh, and you, and look, I was naive. I think, hell, this is going to be great. Oh man, there's more money coming in. This is going to be awesome. You know, Dusty had his, uh, had that plane painted stardust. Yep. How do you think that made flair feel? Oh gosh. Seriously. So Jimmy should have intervened there. You know, Dusty would say, I'm going to, uh, paint the tail of this plane stardust. Jimmy should have stepped in and said, no, you're not. We have other, you know, you're not the only talent going to be riding on it. And what he should have said was, I'm not going to do that to Rick. Rick's been here the longest. Rick's been loyal. Rick's been a lot to mid Atlantic. And, uh, I'm not going to do that. But he did not do it that way. He didn't. And uh, so then now Rick's got to seethe. Now, he may not admit that it, it pissed him off. I don't know. Uh, but I know as a man and as a, a alpha male, uh, he had to, it was a definitive way of saying to, in, in Crockett's world, Dusty's the number one guy. Right. It's not you, Nate. And that's hard for a you know, a guy that's considered the greatest in-ring performer of all time to digest. 
So uh, all those little things like that, you look back on. So we shouldn't have done that. Should have done that. That's a that's the nature of a of a of business. There's great days you want to recall, you want to remember. You know, I never. I was thinking that left the other day about things I learned from Jimmy Crockett. One was uh, how to make a Caesar salad, and uh, with uh, romaine lettuce. I didn't know what romaine lettuce was. I was I'm newly divorced <laughs> now. I ain't had a clue, man. So lettuce is lettuce in my world. <laughs> so uh, romaine lettuce, and then I learned uh, that I like Crown Royal. And the reason I started drinking Crown Royal was because Jimmy Crockett drank Crown Royal, and I wanted to do anything I could to ingratiate myself and to get one step closer on any level to the boss. And uh, so, and I picked up that uh, taste for Crown Royal that still lasts today on occasion. So it was just a strange times and how we, how we got through them all and everybody going through divorces and not everybody or marital issues. There are a lot of marital issues, lots of marital issues, lots of personal things are going on. And when you get that certain lifestyle, man, Conrad, you know, you, it's hard to stop. It's hard to stop buying. It's hard to stop spending when you're buying stuff. And when you're in a competition on the biggest Rolex or the biggest fur coat, or the biggest car or the coolest Mercedes or whatever it may be wrong priorities. You're taking, you have taken your eye off a realistic and believable ball. Let's talk about something. Dusty did have his eye on here. He's putting together a program with two heel teams and two heel managers. And it feels like we're about to get the midnight express with Jim Cornette taking on the horseman, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard with JJ Dillon. And we didn't get the full deal here because ultimately Arn and Tully are going to leave and go to the WWF and JJ's not too far behind them, but man, this was a big deal. You didn't normally book two heel tag teams against each other in this era. Uh, what'd you think about this idea of a program? I mean, clearly two of the, if not the very best tag teams in the game here in 88. I, uh, knew that the matches would be amazing. I knew that the promos for those matches would be amazing and it would be up to the fans to decide who they would wanted to cheer and who they wanted to boo. So I didn't have a problem with it. I thought it was a unique thing every now and then, you know, watch was very leery of having, uh, heel matches because you, you worry about the, the audience not declaring because they want to see both entities get the shit beat out of them. Cause they're heels. They're bad guys. They're no, have no redeeming social qualities. I don't like you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I didn't have a problem with that. Quite frankly, I, I thought it was intriguing because I knew at the end of the day, Conrad, and this is something that every promoter, every booker, uh, every talent has got to see. And that is we have a chance here based on who's booked in this match to kill it. And I think that's the thing about it is that. And quite frankly, there was a little rivalry, uh, friendly rivalry. I would say that, you know, Cornette wanted his team to be known as the best team. And of course, JJ wanted the horseman who had had a, had a you know, great run with Arn and Tully. And so, uh, I, I thought it was very competitive uh, outside the box booking, uh, and, and it made sense. So, uh, no, no issues there with that, that, that matter, because at the end of the day, no matter, like I said, whatever you're booking. Can you visualize the match in your head that you're penciling in? And do you see a great performance? 
that in, then it entertains and uh, it motivates your paying customer. And I thought Midnight and Horseman would motivate the paying customer. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing in this era. You're sort of bouncing back and forth between ring announcing and being an on-camera, you know, play-by-play announcer. Did you find that difficult to balance the two? I mean, obviously you per- well, I shouldn't say obviously. I would prefer you would or I think you would prefer being a commentator rather than, than being a ring announcer. What can yep. you tell us about going back and forth and, and your memories of being a ring announcer, what you liked or didn't like? Well, I've done some ring announcing for Cowboy on special occasions. Uh, I remember <clears throat> a story about that. We had the first Jim Crockett, uh, Memorial cup in new Orleans. And, uh, uh, I, I, I credit Jimmy Crockett for this, uh, cowboy said in a meeting, like a production meeting, organizational meeting. Well, I got my announcer here. He can do some ring announcing. And, uh, and the cowboy suggests that Tony also do some ring announcing and Jimmy Crockett to his credit spoke up and said, my ring, my, my play by play guy doesn't do ring announcing, man. I love to hear that. So at the Crockett cup, none of us, we, neither one of us did ring announcing as I recall, I didn't hate it, but I knew that wasn't my calling card. I knew that it wasn't why or how I was going to earn a better living ring announcer pay is substantially lower than a good play by play man's pay. And Tony and I were laughing about this the other day. Uh, you know, we were the first right at the very beginning, we were the among the first ever full-time play-by-play guys that worked for the company and got paid back in the day, you know, my, the great Bob Cottle, who had his 90th birthday here a while back. And I got the sweetest phone call from him the other day. Uh, I sent a bunch of JR's products and JR's barbecue.com and both slobber knocker and under the black hat, which I also have at that website. And, uh, he was so elated. He called me and I knew it was him. I had my phone and I was just tickled. I was just hoping it wasn't bad news. You never know when you're 90. And, uh, but he was so tickled about that. Uh, but Bob Cottle was a, a newsman at WRAL in Raleigh. So he was a part-time play-by-play guy, even though he was the voice of the brand. But Tony Knight migrated into that role full-time. And there were, in most territories, you had guys that were play-by-play guys. They were either, they could be a part of the office, but more often than not, they were, they were freelancers. They were, and they were moonlighting from their day job. So, uh, you know, Gordon Soley was one of the exceptions, uh, obviously. But Gordon worked in different, different promotions as a freelancer. He worked in Continental. He worked in Georgia. He worked, of course, in Florida. So uh, we were kind of in the cutting edge of the, or the front of that equation. Uh, so Jimmy protected us in that regard, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful that he did because it just opened the door to, to create more opportunities and more income. So I was not a, I never thought my voice was the, the booming. Uh, voice that you, that I would have liked to have had as a ring announcer. Uh, the modulation wasn't, I, I didn't feel like I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Now I always did it. I never turned down the assignment because what you're, you know, your boss tells you to do this, you go do it. But I'd rather stay in, my, in at the ringside chair and, and, and work on that game as opposed to the, the ring announcing. I didn't have a problem with it. Didn't, didn't, did I embrace it? Not really, but I did it because that was what I was assigned to do. Let's talk about some other news and notes before we get to the show at the end of July, Robert Gibson of the rock and roll express is going to quit the promotion. 
after a paycheck for only $1,100 for a week's worth of great American bash tour shows. This is a big deal. I mean, the rock and roll express have been a staple here for a long time. You go back a couple years and man, they were running two towns in 86 on one side, you had flair and dusty. And on the other side, you had the rock and roll express and they had their, what was it called? Super summer sizzler tour or something like that. And yeah, it was just nuts. Their, their fandom. And now you fast forward two years and half of the team is quitting over a bad payday. And, and you've often said here on the show, it all comes down to cash and creative. What do you remember about Robert Gibson quitting here after an $1,100 paycheck? Well, I figured, uh, scared to death that, you know, both of Ricky and Robert were going to leave. Uh, sometimes a guy gets miffed over a paycheck. He does a little protest, so to speak. I'm not going to work here. Then the cooler has prevailed down the road. Uh, maybe his pay is addressed, uh, more to more of the talents liking. So, but what you worried about was, uh, Ricky also leaving, uh, you know, Ricky Morton, I got all the love in the world for Robert Gibson, but Ricky Morton has always been the star of that team. And, uh, the, he did the promos. He did most of the interviews. He did most of the selling. Uh, you know, he was such a viable part of the rock and roll express's success, but luckily Ricky didn't leave Robert Robert's home life and his family situation was different than Ricky's Ricky had, you could call Ricky the father of our country. He had a lot of kids. Uh, you know, his, his young son, Carrie is, uh, trying to get in the business and is, Ricky's teaching him to wrestle and to work and good looking kid, nice young man, but Ricky's got a lot of older children. So it wasn't a fact that he could probably afford to be missing paychecks. And the fact that, you know, uh, him staying was a, was a, was a bonus, but you know, I was disappointed. I, I love the rock and roll express, you know, all those years and that time in mid South together with those dudes and, and they did such great work for us there and drew a lot of money. So a lot of merchandise. Uh, just were terrific. And then of course, then cowboy put the midnight express together as a team. And that was a marriage made in heaven, the two expresses. So, uh, and I, I was disappointed that it happened, but look, it, it was it the way to handle the issue. I don't know that very rarely is the right way to solve a problem to just up and quit. Right. Don't know. That's the right path to take, but in any event, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, you know, Ricky's situation would be, I got kids to feed. I got to have a job. And Ricky was, was willing to try his hand doing something else. I remember he was, was he in the, the York foundation or whatever it was with, uh, Terry Reynolds, uh, that, uh, Terry Taylor, Ricky Morton, I think I can't, uh, all that stuff kind of runs together, but Ricky, Ricky was going to land on his feet in some way because of his great skill. And, uh, the charisma that he had. So, but it was, it was unfortunate, no doubt, unfortunate, but that's cash and creative, man. You can go back and look, this guy left, this guy come did this. Why cash or creative? It's what is either cash or creative. I promise you. It's pretty wild to think that, uh, Morton gets put together with Nikita Koloff on TV coming out of this, of all the people you could pick Ricky Morton to tag with Nikita Koloff. What's the thinking here? Ricky would sell Nikita with a limited skill set would get the big comeback and clothesline everybody in sight. And, <laughs> and, and, and well, seriously, and that's what it was. Yeah. And he had animal magnetism. 
So Ricky selling and, uh, and the people get investing emotionally in the match, then getting the hot, handing off the hot tag to Nikita, uh, was, was a nice, uh, uh, theory, nice game plan, so to speak, but it was unique. It was unique, but what it was, was it a way to clearly define and identify that Nikita was going to be a baby face and having a Russian baby face, even though he was from Minnesota, uh, was unusual at that point in time. So, uh, that was kind of the scenario. It'd be like having a, you know, uh, in during the, those, the, uh, the, uh, Iranian war and all that stuff, having a middle Eastern baby face just didn't seem to be the right fit at that point in time, but it worked. Hey, look, it, it got Nikita on the map. And I think Nikita working with Ricky Morton was also a better, was better for Nikita on the long haul. You can't get better as a wrestler. If you work regularly, nightly, weekly, whatever the hell it may be with someone that isn't as good as you, as far as their skill set is concerned to improve your game as a wrestler, you got to find a way to get booked and work with people that are better than you. So you can learn from them so that you don't have to, in your evolving stage, lower your game because the skill set of the guy you're booked with just isn't very good. So, uh, that was a great learning experience. And look, Nikita had a great look. Uh, he was well liked in the office. Nice guy, you know, fresh, kind of fresh at that point in time. So, uh, I, I thought it, it served a lot of masters quite frankly, but was it a departure from Ricky and Robert, the lovable rock and roll express? Oh yeah. Big time different. Let's talk about, uh, something that's happening on TV on. September 3rd, there's an ad played on TV for clash three here, and it shows Bobby Eaton and Stan lane as being advertised to wrestle. But of course it never happens. Is this, you know, the, is this a Turner snafu? Is this a dusty, uh, last minute decision? Is this JJ not coming behind him with a fine tooth comb to make sure we didn't miss anything? It's un it's unlike the company at the time, the WWF would do this all the time where they would advertise somebody and then just sort of hang their hat on card subject to change. But we didn't see it that often from, from the NWA here, but we do with regard to Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane here. Yeah. Surprising. Uh, it was just a matter of trying to separate great talents from a tag team and, and, and create more, uh, horizontal depth, uh, quite frankly, or vertical depth, I should say. Uh, yeah, again, I don't want to say grasping at straws, might've been that and it depends on your perspective, but I think it was, uh, you kind of got to figure that a match with Bobby Eaton against anybody, especially against a talent like Stan Lane was going to be a good in-ring product, but are, were the audience going to care about it? Was the story told in a long enough arc to get me interested in it? Did it have episodic booking? Was it, was it, did it play out? So I could finally get my, get my hands and arms around it. Not really. Uh, I didn't really understand that one. It's just thinking outside the box, trying to find something that might work and spark interest. Magnum TA is going to debut a new talk show called straight talk on worldwide with Kendall Wyndham. What'd you think of Magnum in that role? And, and it's probably pretty cool to see Magnum doing something again for fans, but you view all the television production stuff through a different lens than we do at home. How do you think Magnum did with straight talk and as an on-air personality? I thought we threw him in the deep water real early, you know, Terry Allen, uh, 
one of the great guys in the business. Uh, and of course people can't, people that weren't alive then or students of the game, uh, can't realize perhaps how over he was, you know, he was, he was big time over in, uh, mid South, you know, cowboy helped carve that character out and did the vignettes and all the things gave him a, the old proverbial push for God's sakes. We have to have the push somewhere in this conversation. And, uh, but I thought that, you know, th those could have been like pre-taped and so he could see his work and he could, uh, correct his fallacies as far as a, a broadcast was concerned. But I was glad that, that he got a, uh, he got a gig there. You know, we loved Terry and the, the hand that he got dealt was just, a, a horrible, uh, lucky to be alive and, and, uh, uh he just kept fighting and fighting all his, his, his whole life. So he's a, and he's doing it today. He raised a family and got, got a good job and all those things. But Terry was very well liked. So all of us were willing and hopeful that it was going to work. Uh, but it just, it was, it was a little premature before the talk show segments. The, the talk show segments are amazing. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody can't be Piper's pit. Right. Cause everybody can't be Rowdy Piper, but, uh, Terry was a great student of the game, but he wasn't a broadcaster. So I think him getting some practice runs, getting his, uh, you know, getting his timing and his rhythm would have been better off. But the idea on the surface was not a bad idea. It just was, he wasn't ready for that role. I didn't think. Let's talk a little bit about something that we see on TV. Kevin Sullivan is going to attack Jimmy Garvin and precious. And then uh, Rotunda is going to join in and they break Jimmy Garvin's leg with a cinder block before being run off by all the baby faces. Pretty memorable angle at the time. What do you remember about the cinder block deal with Jimmy Garvin? Pretty basic, pretty basic. Uh, uh, the numbers game catches up with the, with the baby face. The good guy gets really put in jeopardy. Uh, he gets humiliated and hurt in front of his own wife. All the, all the elements were there. Uh, was it all the right people? I don't know. Uh, I don't have great memories of it being, I remember that we're talking about it, that it occurred, but it wasn't something that just jumped off the page at me. Uh, and I was a big fan of all those guys, you know, uh, uh, Sullivan helped give Rotunda some charisma and some sizzle, uh, cause of Kevin's big personality and, and his interview abilities and, and his persona. And of course, uh, uh, Jimmy had been a heel for so long and he'd finally turned, uh, and his wife, uh, uh precious was just a, a, a wonderful person to be around. Uh, so we all want, again, they were likable. We liked those people. And, but the angle just didn't really jump off the page because nobody was really over, over in those, uh, in their, in their respective roles. So to me, it was essentially another day at the office. Another angle was shot it, with the, your fingers crossed that it would get over and people would resonate from what they saw and, uh, and, 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 and support it. That, that didn't happen. Let's, uh. Let's talk about the news in the torch. This is from August 25th, 1988. You sort of alluded to this earlier, but now we've got real numbers put to it. Crockett reportedly took a loan from Ted Turner around the $600,000 range 
The wrestlers have now begun to receive money. They were owed the sale of the NWA to Turner has not taken place yet, but is apparently closer now than ever before. This is a big deal. I don't think this gets talked about enough. You know, we often hear that Vince McMahon would loan Paul Heyman money. It seems like it was smaller increments once upon a time, but when ECW started to really circle the drain, he started to carve off bigger chunks for Paul, but they were really just band-aids. It wasn't going to solve the problem. And that's what this feels like. It was. Okay. Yeah, it was. It it didn't solve all the problems. You didn't get that scenario where you got that one-time big loan of of an influx of new cash to solve your ills. Uh, The ills are much deeper than 600k and uh but at least it caught some guys up on their paychecks which was a, a good thing but it, it, all it was band-aids are perfect way of, of uh, describing it it was just a temporary solution to a bigger long-term problem well here's another indicator that there's a problem the nwa champion who main evented the prior year's super show starcade is now leaving the NWA and he's already signed for dates with the flailing is probably the right word to describe the AWA here, Ron Garvin, he's leaving, going to work with Vern. What's the thinking here? I mean, obviously Garvin as an experiment wasn't necessarily successful. We tried it. It didn't work. Does he feel like, uh, Hey, the writing's on the wall for the promotion or dusty didn't know how to use me. What do you think is his chief reason for wanting to leave and go somewhere else? I think the instability of the company, hence cash, you not knowing, you know, here again, you're having to get a loan to catch talents up on paychecks, uh, and old veterans like Ronnie Garvin, smart guy. One of the, one of the first guys have his, uh, pilot's license, flew himself and some of the boys around, to their shots in the territory days. Ronnie's a very bright guy and a hell of a hand, hands of stone by the way, and, uh, a real workhorse, but he was smart enough to see that, you know, where there's smoke, sometimes there's big fire. And, uh, when you got to get bailed out, of course, when you, when you hear about the loan, you know, then all of a sudden in the wrestler speak that loan, the, the, uh, the denomination of the money becomes ever changing. Uh, I heard he had to get a million dollars. I heard he had to do So it's always more drastic and more extreme. Uh, so I think Ronnie just saw again, Conrad back to those two C's baby money cash. Uh, I don't think Ronnie would have a big issue on his, unless he was told, Hey, look, you're the top guy in the territory. You're the champion, but we have no plans for you now. And he could hear that too and say, well, okay, then I'm out of here. Uh, but I think pro- primarily it was the money and the fact that the money looked like it was drying up. And he didn't want to be caught in the crossfire. So he took a guaranteed deal, uh, with Ghana, uh, and, uh, AWA at that time, obviously. So, uh, just to make sure that he got a steady income. So people say, well, why would he do that? Well, why would you keep your job? Do you like going to the grocery store and being able to pay your bill? Do you like being able to make your car payment or your mortgage payment? Of course you do. We all do. So, uh, that, I think that's what, what was there. He just, He's a smart enough businessman to know something's up and it doesn't smell good. I'm curious, you know, you said the boys knew because they were sort of, you know, telephone, telegram, tele wrestler, and they started to pump that number up. Oh, it was 600. It was 800. It was over a million. 
how does that get out? It feels like this would have been something Crockett was trying to play real close to the vest. How, how would anybody have known that he got alone? You tell one wrestler, you might as well figure it's going to be disseminated, uh, to the channels. They can't keep a secret. It's a, it's a sickness. They can't keep a secret. Uh, and especially when you're talking to that level and that was a big thing, man. The, the WCW was a salvation for guys that couldn't get a job or didn't want to work for the WWF at the time. So it's, it was a huge, it was huge news. And you get guys that are established, uh, they have their homes bought their kids in school. They have a lifestyle. They have a life. So, uh, I just, I, I, I think that it was just a matter of, you know, uh, it was, it was chaos. And the wrestlers love the gossip, right? They love the gossip and they love to embellish. And as you said, telephone, telegraph, tell the wrestlers, it's a little, you know, humorous cliche, but it's very, very accurate. And so then the, the embellishment starts and that's where you, that's where you leave it. So I, I'm, uh, I, I just think that it was the talk of the town. And if it's a talk of the town on the, in the observer or the torch, you damn sure know it's a talk of the locker room. Let's talk a little bit about something else. That's going to be the talk of the locker room. Rick Flair is unhappy. We've talked about it a little bit before he's, uh, feeling a little slighted by Jimmy. He's feeling a little slighted by the booking from dusty Rhodes. He would often go and complain to Jimmy. Oh, they're killing us. They're not giving us anything. Cause dusty wanted the baby faces to leave him laying every night. And it usually included dusty Rhodes and when dusty wins the bunkhouse stampede, there's a famous quote out there from Tully Blanchard saying that, oh, dusty's ideal main event would be if dusty could lose to dusty. Um, <laughs> you know, so we've got a lot of uneasiness there and Bruce Pritchard has been pretty open about the fact that they thought they had Ric Flair for the first SummerSlam. They had teased the brother love show with a mystery guest, and it was supposed to be in New York city. SummerSlam, one of their big marquee events, one of their big pay-per-view extravaganzas, the very first SummerSlam, the debut of the nature boy, Ric Flair. And of course, at the last minute, Rick got cold feet, didn't make the jump. That's at the end of August. So they had to pivot and they came up with hacksaw, Jim Duggan, which he's already on the roster. So it's not exactly a big surprise mystery guest. So it does seem logical or reasonable that maybe Rick was at least considering or flirting with the idea of leaving. Did you hear about that at the time or only years later? Uh, no, I, I heard about it. You know, Rick was very, uh, Rick didn't keep anything. I'll say that it's not a good statement. Rick didn't keep much to himself. He wore his emotions uh, on his sleeve or whatever. A, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's just his personality. It's not a bad thing, by the way, folks, that's just Nate. That's what one of the, one of the traits that has made him arguably the greatest of all time. Yeah. He, he had great passion and he, you could see it. You could feel it. I've done, I've done, he's probably the only guy I can think of, uh, off the top of my head where I've done a interview at ringside and where I would get chills up and down my arms because he was that passionate. I believed what he said. I saw the, uh, uh, uh a video uh, on social media here recently. Uh, right after the death of the great Bob Armstrong, where he did a promo with his son, Brad, with Tony 
on the set of the TBS uh, Techwood studio. And I believed every word as a hardened, grizzled old veteran that Bob Armstrong was saying in that, uh, that vintage interview, he, he meant everything he said. He didn't have a writer. It, it was, it was, he spoke his voice with his thoughts and his words, his feeling. And that's what I got from Rick a lot. And so Rick wore his feelings on his sleeve and he would commiserate. You know, I, I talked to him during those times I and mean, I don't, I'm going to, you know, this is the shits and you know, the creators, you know, we're, we've got no ideas. There's nothing fresh, but here's what he was really saying. My money's in jeopardy. Right. And, and Rick not being unlike anybody else, especially guys that made a lot of money. Uh, maybe he wasn't the guy you won't do in your taxes. <laughs> fair, so, to say. Uh, fair to say, right? Yeah. And, uh, don't make him a bad guy. Just makes him, he's, he, he's not, a, he's not a bean counter. Right. And, and here he is in the seventies. So after working his ass off, you know, we know why he's working his ass off. He, he needs a payday. Just like I'm working my ass off. We all want the paydays. So, uh, at this stage of our lives. And we love doing it. Wouldn't want to do anything else than what I'm doing right now. Right. And so, uh, you know, so Rick would share his feelings. That's what I'm trying to say here in a very convoluted way. So it wasn't a secret that Rick would have entertained the thoughts of going to where else would he go? He would, he's not going to go to ECW. Right. He's going to go to the big time. He's going to go to the big dog in the yard and that's Vince McMahon's company. So, uh, that's that, that couldn't have been a secret. That could have been a surprise. So I, I think that, but Rick had, Rick had several of those moments in his life where he was unhappy. Uh, he was a little, he was disenchanted and he was, and if the, you feel the onion back a little bit more, he was concerned about how he was going to make a living and, and, and maintain the lifestyle that he had established. So, uh, no, no secret there. So, but you know, luckily he didn't, uh, he didn't bolt at that point in time, but man, it had been a good time to leave because yeah, as we saw in the, in Albany, uh, the crowd was sparse for the clash. I think the TV rating was pretty good, but the crowd was, you know, less than 4,000 people. Before we get to the, uh, the show, I do want to ask about, you know, flair sticking around. Why do you think he stuck around? Was he just, it was out of his comfort zone. You know, he knew that he felt like Crockett was going to take care of him. He knew they knew how to feature him, that he was going to be on top, that he was close to home. Did he not want to travel? Did he not think that, do you think Vince maybe might change his gimmick? Why do you think ultimately he didn't show up at SummerSlam? I think it was a comfort zone issue. Uh, you know, he, he grew up in mid Atlantic. He grew up working for the Crockett's. He, he, he established his roots, his reputation, uh, in the, uh, uh, in, in the mid Atlantic territory. It was home Conrad, right? It was home. Uh, you know, as people thought, well, God, Tom Brady will always be a Patriot wrong. Right. But he, he waited until he was 42 to jump. So he tried to hang in there. But, you know, just, he finally had to say, I'm going to, I got to try something else. It takes a, that's a bold move. So I think Rick was in a, in a definitive comfort zone. There was a, I believe a strong loyalty 
to Jimmy Crockett and the Crockett family, because we both know that Jimmy had come to Rick's aid on more than one occasion when he needed help. Yeah. Let's talk about that. He's talked about it before in his book. It's not a big deal, but he's often said that he being Rick pronouns, pal, that he didn't do himself any favors because he wasn't always the best steward with his money. I mean, he was, and and, and by the way, people are going to rag on that and I get it. But you have to appreciate this is a guy who very early in his career was making a whole bunch of money real fast. So he, he doesn't have an inability to earn income. It's the whole saving it that really kicked his ass to the point that he's going to have to get in a little bit of IRS trouble and he goes to the Crockett's and they bail him out with an advance. But because now he's taking that advance, he's beholden. And that really means he loses any sort of leverage in negotiations. So he probably could have been making more than he was. And now he's not even happy with the creative because Dusty's beating him every night and leaving the horseman laying. And he doesn't even feel like Jimmy's top guy because it says stardust on the plane. So I see how he has some weird feelings, uh, but Jimmy had bailed him out a little bit, but for years and years, and I haven't talked to Rick about this in probably five years. But five years ago, he was still low key hot at Jim Crockett because apparently when he goes to Jim and, and tries to reconcile what we're doing here with, am I going, am I staying? He winds up signing a new contract with Jim and Jim knew that he needed Rick under contract in order for Turner to buy the deal. Absolutely. So this was finally. Rick Flair's opportunity to get paid what he thought he was really worth, really top guy money, maybe not Hogan money, but not too far down, down below it because he thought he could have got that with WWF, but instead he is going to stay loyal to the guy who floated him when he got in IRS trouble and blah, blah, blah with Crockett, but Mm -hmm. Crockett knowingly has him sign this contract with him, Jim Crockett, knowing that I'm not even staying in the wrestling business. I'm getting out and selling it to Turner, but supposedly, and Rick found out years later. Ted Turner wasn't going to buy the deal. If Ric Flair wasn't included, is that what you heard? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Ted being the gregarious free spirit that he, uh, has been in his business life. Uh, he identified with Nate. They enjoyed each other's company. They Rick made Ted laugh. Ted lived a little vicariously through Rick and his promos and the, and the women and the Marriott's and this and that and the other, you know, Ted loved to be entertained as well. But Ted also knew from, you know, cocktail hour in Atlanta a few nights, uh, that Rick was a real deal and he enjoyed being around him and he had the most, uh, organic name identity of anybody in the company. So he was, he was, he was as much Rick met as much as I'll put it this way. I don't know that Ted could name you five wrestlers that he, uh, the contracts he was buying. Right but he knew who Ric Flair was sure. And he knew that that's his quarterback. I got to have this guy was his Dominique Wilkins because Ted also owned the Hawks and Dominique was his guy. So he was, uh, Rick was the basketball version of Dominic Wilson or the wrestling version of Dominique Wilkins. Uh, but that was a, that was a, that was the deal. It was really, it, he, Jimmy had to have Rick. And so whatever he had to do, to get Rick, uh, signed and extended was what he did to get the, for the sake of the deal. But all that did was tell you, it reinforces the fact that the financial situation at that point in time for, uh, 
for the wrestling company there in Atlanta was, uh, was very real. It was, they were, they were, they were on the, on the brink. And I, I'm glad that, like I said earlier, I'm glad I didn't know how bad it was because I'd have probably been worried about, you know, I sure as hell would, I tell you this, uh, I, it was a long time. This may sound funny. It was a long time, Conrad, in my career before I ever thought about buying another piece of real estate because I was unsure of my business and how long it was going to last. I lived in that much uncertainty. I remember when Jan and I first started seeing each other, uh, I was living in a uh, one-bedroom apartment uh, down in Buckhead. Now you say, oh, that's a high dollar. This. It was a nice high-rise apartment, don't get me wrong. But the issue was is that I didn't have a long-term commitment because if I lost my job or got my pay cut, uh, then what now? Now I got another mortgage I got to eat. So I was, it was a long time for me. I learned a, a tough lesson on that deal. So I didn't buy, I didn't buy another house. We bought a, we bought a condo. Jan and I did, uh, eventually, uh, there in Atlanta, uh, after I got canned the first time, uh, in 94, I think it was. So anyhow, uh, you learn lessons as you go along this thing. And, you know, Rick had a big house and he had high dollar cars and he lived a great lifestyle, really a great lifestyle. And he wanted to maintain that lifestyle, but he couldn't maintain that lifestyle without cash flow. So that was the deal there. I think, uh, it's an interesting story behind the scenes, certainly that we're talking about that, uh, Rick was the key component in Turner buying Crockett without a doubt. I gotta ask, you know, Rick's, um, unhappiness with Jim was based around Hey man, if you're not paying it anyway, what the fuck does it matter? Why didn't you sign me for more money? What do you think of that? Do you think that Jimmy should have tried to take care of, of Rick and, and get him on a bigger contract? Ultimately, he's going to sell it anyway. Where do you land on that discussion? I would have made sure that Rick was happy. I would have found the magic number within reason that would make him comfortable and happy and productive, whatever that number may be is the number that he would have, he would receive if I was negotiating with him, because again, you got no deal without Rick. So you pay him more than you normally would pay him because quite frankly, uh, you could eliminate two or three uh, underneath contracts and give that money to Rick and never miss a beat because you're already spending the money. You're just spending the money in a different place on a different talent. So one talent's going to make a whole lot of money. And you, and, and unfortunately the, the stark reality is, is that, you know, you, you, you don't, you don't need some of those underneath guys. They were making a hundred grand a year, or 150. Hey, three of those 150 is 450 grand new money. So what you're going to pay Rick plus the 450 probably make him happy. Let's get to the show fall brawl. We're finally here coming to you live from Albany, Georgia. There's a crowd of about 3,700 people. It's going to get a 5.4 rating on TBS. And our very first match is Mike Rotunda beating, uh, Brad Armstrong or not beating him. They go to a 20 minute draw. Mm-hmm. It's for the NWA world TV title. Uh, Wade would say the match was well done and a very good opener, but it wasn't spectacular, but both men worked hard. The announcers kept talking up Armstrong as a future superstar. The end saw the fans cheering on Armstrong, hoping he could last the time limit. 
as he was being pulverized by Rotunda. They were popping at every two count Armstrong managed to kick out of. I hope they build this into a feud. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Mike Rotunda here on the show, but Brad Armstrong is sort of one of the unsung heroes of wrestling. We've heard from everyone he worked with that he was one of the best in ring performers of all time, a natural, mm-hmm. and he had a great look. And behind the scenes, apparently he was quite the character, very charismatic, very funny. But when the red light comes on, it just didn't translate to TV. Well, but this is the first time fans are sort of really getting behind him here. What'd you think of the match? And, and what can you tell us about Brad Armstrong and why it didn't click for him on a bigger level? I think Brad's scenario situation was, uh, his dad, you know, a bullet Bob was so charismatic, so glib a great, great promo guy that, uh, you know, and he cast a long shadow. We can go back and look at a lot of the sons of charismatic fathers that also didn't measure up to daddy. And, uh, Brad Armstrong, just fundamentally nuts and bolts. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely. I never saw him have a bad match and God knows he was given some hellaciously poor gimmicks. Uh, wasn't he arachna man and yep. the candy man and you know, whatever. So, uh, but he, he, the charisma side of the natural charisma side, it never seemed like Brad was totally comfortable, uh, in, in the, in the, in, in the, the verbal side of his presentation. Cause the Lord knows, man, if he was, had the gift of gab like bullet, uh, because of his working ability, you know, Brad would have been, uh, he would have been a much bigger star than he was because he was well-liked. He was fundamentally sound. He was a good businessman. He was a good person. You know, a lot of folks may not realize this, but I'm told that Brad died of sleep apnea. And, uh, you know, I got Shivani now on a CPAP machine. Oh, he's loving it too. He says it's a game changer for him. It is anybody. Look, if you're, if you, if your significant other tells you you're stopped breathing, one of those, you know, snoring and you go that kind of, I hear on the airplane all the time. I want to do these interventions like a evangelist or something. Uh, but the, you'll kill you, kill Reggie white, a great football player, hall of famer, uh, Brad, you know, and it's, you know, I think stone cold's got Jesus. I think I got, I told the stone cold about a CPAP machine. A lot of guys, uh, it's not unusual. It's not, it's not a sign of weakness, but if you can recognize it, folks, you can extend your lifestyle or li- your lifespan, I should say. And so I think Brad passed away of a sleep apnea. So I, I was told just yesterday that. So, uh, uh, but that was the deal. A little, he missed that one, uh, charismatic gene, but nobody, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with his being a good citizen, a good pro because my God, man, he could work now. He could, he could get it. And, uh, but that was a deal, but we, we had great hope that based on what we saw, uh, that his, his skill set, his work ethic, uh, was enough to get him quote unquote over and that he would step up and acquire the taste that he needed, uh, to be that charismatic guy on, on the mic. But he was, a he was a great, great prospect really, really was. And I'll be honest with you. I, I thought he was a can't miss guy. I thought he's going to be working in the main events sooner than later. And for a long time, he just couldn't quite get over that charismatic hump. 
Next up, we've got Nikita Koloff and Steve Williams beating the sheep herders when Nikita pinned Butch Miller. Uh, Wade would say Nikita is definitely back on steroids. Uh, Williams looked enthusiastic. The sheep herders were their usual entertaining selves. Uh, Williams did some impressive press slams and even executed an impressive top rope cross body block. Miller was pinned after a Nikita sickle. The match was better than I expected with all four men working very hard. It gives it a B minus. This is interesting to me because this is the last sort of major show for the sheep herders. Again, this is September of 88 fast forward. They're going to debut in December of 88 for Vince McMahon rebranded as the bushwhackers. But Lord, could those presentations have been any different? The Bushwhackers are almost a comedy act doing their silly dance on the way to the ring and licking kids. That's a weird <laughs> sentence. Uh, but, but here, man, they're blood and guts, a uh, different look. What'd you think of the match? And were you surprised when the sheep herders left just a couple months later? Yeah, I, I could tell you this. They were, they were two of the guys in that, uh, 20 man first blood battle Royal that didn't have any complaints. They had no issues bleeding. How many nights in a row you want to do it from all those times in uh, abroad, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, including, uh, no issues. You can tell by the scars and, uh, uh, you know, you see, uh, uh Luke occasionally when we were having these card shows and people were actually having events and conventions and things like that. Uh, uh, you know, they, 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 they show the scars, the battle scars of, uh, of their trade, but yeah, it was a, it was a different deal. They, they were, they were reliable pros who, uh, still had a good enough. They, they look, they weren't young guys at that point in time. They, they were, they had been around the block. They had been road hard and put up wet. As they say, the tread of the tire was getting a little thin, but they had such great psychology as those vicious bloodthirsty heels that you believed in them. And, and they had the scars, as I said, to prove that they were bad, bad men. But then on the other side of the ring, you got two of the guys that could have been utilized to build upon around in Nikita and doc, but you know, Nikita got a shot because again, he teamed with dusty. Uh, then he, the, the, uh, when Magnum got hurt, they need that. The, they had to have that big young baby face and Nikita was the guy, which was bold. I thought good booking by dusty in that particular situation for sure. The fact that, uh, you got a Russian and the old xenophobic uh, horse shit that we have grown up living in, in wrestling. Uh, you can't be a baby face. If you're not American, well, come on. Uh, we forget that the, we live in a land of it's a melting pot. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, ethnicities and so forth that live in our country. Uh, so the Ketos did, did well, well, I thought that doc, because I've always been partial to doc sometimes to a fault. I, I, I admit that, uh, I thought doc was with the right manager, with a Jim Cornette-like or a Paul Heyman-like manager, uh, he would have been a massive star uh, because he was a believable heel. And uh, he, he's athletic. He's, and Watts used to say, I think I said this on TV the other night, athletic big men always have uh, always draw premium. And Doc certainly was an athlete. He could do the splits. He could do drop kicks. He, didn't, he got his ass chewed out for doing some of those things by the Cowboy. He wanted to be a... A ground and pounder and a, and a, and a bulldozer, an earth mover, but to, you got Nikita and doc and you go back and look at it, Conrad, even though they both had a cup of coffee here and there and Nikita more than doc, they never were booked or created for 
to maximize their, their ultimate potential. But, uh, and putting them with the two guys like the Bushwhackers, uh, Luke and Butch, who knew every trick in the book, had great psychology, were unselfish, good timing, uh, was a smart, smart move, in my, in my opinion. Really a good match. You know, it's fun to watch stuff from this era and just see how much wrestling has changed. But you want to talk about big badasses, Nikita Koloff and Steve Williams check the boxes and so do the sheep herders. And I grew up on the sheep herders being the bushwhackers. So to see them here, a little more blood and guts, it's, uh, it's a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a lot different, but at that point in their career, uh, you know, one of the things that heels have got to be able to do in any generation is to feed a comeback. And, you know, those guys are getting a little older. Uh, so their, their massive bumping days, uh, were, were, uh, waning. So I thought making them a comedic characters, uh, was good for the, for Luke and Butch at that stage of their life. They made some money, you know, so talk about, we talked earlier about flair going to WWF. I'm not sure Conrad, and you may have a better feel for this talking to Rick than I do. Uh, I don't know that Vince is going to throw out big guarantees to get a talent like flair there or, or not. It was just the fact that you're going to trust Vince to yep. use you, for, uh, but there's no guarantee. No. Yeah. So if, he, if he, he's he got a guarantee, if you got a guarantee from Crockett to close to be able to facilitate this deal, quite frankly, economically, that was a better deal for Nate because there you're on salary, so to speak in that, in that arrangement, as opposed to being a commission salesperson and having to be booked well, the house has got to draw, all the pieces are in place. You're going to make a lot of money. And, uh, so I, I think Rick probably made the right call on that deal, but that's the, that's the scenario there with that. I just thinking about how that money thing worked and all that, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm uh, I, 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 we look back at that. Uh, we had some really good talent in that roster. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. And it's, it just, some of it just was never, uh, realized full potential was never realized. And that's what you kind of hate because we can't go back and retrace yesterday. We can study yesterday. We tomorrow's are not guaranteed as I said here many times. So you got to live for today in essence and, uh, enjoy today. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I, I think that the Bushwhackers made the right move at the right time. And, uh, some of their vignettes are funnier than hell, but they were funny guys, right? They were entertaining guys in real life. So, and, and don't think they weren't tough. They were tough dudes, man. They were tough dudes to be heels in Puerto Rico and defy the, uh, Puerto Rican populace and show no fear. Uh, it takes some balls and they had that. Let's talk about the next match. It's dusty Rhodes defeating Kevin Sullivan. When dusty pins, Gary Hart, uh, Wade would say this was a quick six minute match with the golden spike revisiting dusty's forehead. The match was a basic brawl with most of the action outside the ring. Al Perez interfered with a dog collar chain and Gary Hart joins the attack. Instead of disqualifying the heels, Tommy young made the three count on Gary Hart, who was small packaged by dusty dusty's arm was raised in victory and no explanation was given as to where Dick Murdoch was. The match was heavily advertised as the Texas outlaws versus Sullivan and Perez. And he gave it a D minus. 
man, there's so much to unpack here. Number one, where is Dick Murdoch? Why wasn't he here? Uh, I'm sure he didn't like the money. <laughs> you know, uh, I was looking so much looking forward to that match because I had was, and still am uh, a big fan of the Texas outlaws, Murdoch and Rhodes, one of the more underrated teams because they were long before the era of social media and things of that nature. Uh, their matches obviously are out there here, there, and yon YouTube and so forth and so on. I love their chemistry. I love their, 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 their animation, their energy, their charisma. They played off each other so perfectly. And if you go back and watch that, uh, Ganya movie, uh, the wrestler, they got some really neat scenes in that movie that shows a real neat side of their personality that they basically wrote those, those roles themselves. They weren't produced to any large degree. This was them and playing their gimmick and, and their gimmick was being themselves. That's why they, along with so many other teams that we can name or other wrestlers, the natural extension of your normal personality is always amplified. Obviously is what makes you great. If you're, if you're, if you got that big personality, and you're being yourself and I can not see through your bullshit. And I believe what you're telling me, you're a lot more likely to be remain in my memory bank and in my emotions than if you're reciting lines from some writer, or you're just trying to memorize your lines and your pair, you're scared shitless that you're going to forget something and, uh, and you're going to get cast, uh, you know, criticized for it. Sorry to say castrated. That's a little, that's a little extreme, but it's a little stiff. Uh, yeah. A little stiff. Uh, That'd be Watts' next match. It's a castration match, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody's losing their goddamn balls. <laughs> we guarantee it. Uh, uh, but Murdoch, I'm sure it was the money. I'm sure it was the money. Because here's the thing. If it was creative, you know that the Texas Outlaws are going to go over Sullivan and Perez. Right. That's not an issue. So to me, it leaves the only other culprit, the cash. So, uh... And Dickie was getting a little temperamental and so forth. I think there was a little jealousy between Murdoch and Rhodes, uh, you know, especially with, the, with, with Dickie as opposed to Dusty. Dusty became the bigger star out of the team. He, he became the bigger star. And some guys handle that in different ways. I don't think Dusty was, or excuse me, uh, Dickie was ever totally pleased with that because quite honestly, uh, Dusty was not a better worker than Murdoch. Right. Murdoch was Murdoch was a better bell to bell guy than Dusty, but it's just the fact that Dusty was in a different level in a different stratosphere with charisma. Even though Murdoch was very charismatic, but you're comparing your charisma to dreams. That's a tough, uh, that's a tough comparison. I can tell you. So I don't know why Murdoch didn't show up the old, that old finish. That's a finish that I know Watts had used that before Eddie Graham, I think may have been one of the first guys to uh, utilize that finish where you pin the manager. Uh, so you don't have to beat your heel who the shit cares. If you beat, you know, and I'll do respect Al Perez or Kevin Sullivan, right? What, what did it matter? So why do we shit all over the concept uh, of this match? Dusty did himself no favors in, in that scenario whatsoever, none at all. And I don't know why he came to that realization. This is going to be our finish because it just didn't make any sense. And it gave you that, uh, as we, uh, we've grown to know that go away heat. Right. Oh, oh, you roll your eyes. Oh, it's, it's one of those matches where if you're watching it with a buddy, who's a non die hard and you've got to be uh, challenged to explain why this was happening. 
it's a little frustrating because it's illogical and you can't make any logic out of it. You just try to bullshit your way through it. And I think that's probably what we did on commentary. I don't know what to, uh, I mean, here's the thing. We've all always heard that Gary Hart could be peculiar about finishes and creative and things like that. Very protective of his character of all the people to take the pin. I wouldn't have thought it would have been Gary Hart, but was this his way of protecting Al? I don't know this. I don't know. It just seems weird. Well, it was weird. And you're, you're trying to make logic out of it. And there is none. <laughs> there is. I'm sorry. There's no answer here. Right. It, I, and I will tell you that, uh, at various times in Dusty's booking reign, he was, he was strongly influenced good and bad by Sullivan, Kevin and Dusty had that long relationship going back to the satanic days and the angles of maniac Mark Lewin and all that type of things down in Florida. So Dusty and Kevin had a relationship and sometimes when Dusty was up against the wall. Kevin would come up with a creative idea because Kevin had done booking and quite frankly, a lot of Kevin's ideas, Kevin Sullivan today is very, very, uh, uh, I would say very, could be very valuable to any company as far as a creative consultant. Uh, Hey, I got this, this idea for a program. I want you to book it for me. Uh, let's give me, give me eight weeks of these two guys. And I want the blow off to be here. Kevin Sullivan could do that very well. So Kevin and Dusty had a good rapport and I think Dusty trusted Kevin because of their previous uh, experiences and relationship. But sometimes those suggestions are, you know, and, and you think they're good. They look good on paper, but in hindsight, not so much. Match number four, it's Ricky Morton defeating Ivan Koloff in a Russian chain match. This was Ivan Koloff's last chance. According to Paul Jones. Morton's going to drag Cole off to three of the four corner posts. When he gets near the fourth, Ivan grabs Jones cane for leverage. After minutes of struggling, Ivan loses his grip and Morton reaches the fourth post winning the bout. After the bout, the Russian assassins attack Ivan Jack victory debuts under a mask. Uh, and it looks like Meltzer would say, or Wade would say, it looks like he missed a few of those grueling Russian dungeon workouts, his little jab at his physique here. Uh, mm-hmm. The fans chanted Nakita, Nakita, but to no avail, Nakita didn't come. And Ivan got beat up until the commercial break interrupted the beat down. And then Nikita came out and made the save, but it wasn't mentioned in the show. I don't have all. any idea why that happened. That's weird. Is it just yeah. poor timing or they want to save it for TV uh, or no oh shit. It wasn't poor. Yeah. It's poor timing, but it, I don't think it was uh, done intentionally. Just loose structure, you know, putting on a live wrestling show is not easy. We've had so many very talented people do it. You know, all the, especially in today's world, everything that's going on behind the scenes, uh, quite frankly, at times, and I'm sure you're talking, doing your show with Bruce, uh, it's almost as compelling, uh, the things that doesn't make air or you don't talk about than what you see on TV. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. It, it, a lot of things you're, you're scratching your head, but you're saying, well, you know, this group of creative people has had great success. So maybe Jr. they know more about this shit than you do. Right. And they probably did. But so you just wait to see, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let this, the old deal, let it play out. Let's let it play out. Okay. Okay. I'll let it play out. You know, I, I put it on the mantra. I'll call it. 
I may not make any sense. I may not be as into it as I should be, but, uh, you know, you gotta, to write those great lyrics, the wrestlers gotta give you some damn good music to play. And that music that night on a, on a more than one occasion that we've already discussed was not too sweet. We should mention this is sort of the end of an era. I mean, Island Ivan Koloff has been a staple here in mid Atlantic for many years, and he's going to wind up leaving in January. This again is in September. You know, I don't think Ivan Koloff probably got the, the credit he deserved as a performer. I mean, this guy did it all. Did he not? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and loyal, reliable, that number one trait, reliability. Uncle Ivan was a good man. And, uh, I always enjoyed, uh, talking with him. He was, uh, uh, I'm trying to think cowboy said, ask, call him, uh, what was his name? <clears throat> red something. Yeah. He, he wrestled a, a name red something. I can't remember. I'll think oh, of it tomorrow. Uh, red McNulty. That's it. Red McNulty. And, and hardly not many guys knew that at that point in time. And cowboy said, uh, Call Ivan Red McNulty and see the look on his face. So I'm thinking, now is that that big bastard setting me up to get the shit knocked out of me or slap me <laughs> in the face or something? You never knew, man. So uh, I kind of got near him and not around a bunch of the other guys and kind of in soft tones like I'm doing golf, like Jim Nance smoking a joint at uh, at the 18th hole of the Masters. Uh, uh, Tigers uh, on the 18th. And he needs, uh, I need some Doritos. Uh, he, uh, I said, uh, did you know a guy back in the day named red McNulty? <laughs> By the way, that's the gimmick he debuted with when he first started his career. And I think he wore an eye patch and he was Irish or something like that. So <laughs> totally different persona for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, well, he just laughed. He said, where'd you hear that? I said, the big cowboy. Uh, clued me in. He said, Oh, that son of a gun, but he was not, he was a good, Ivan Koloff was a, was a good man and a, and a very talented guy. And let me tell you, let me tell you how respected Ivan Koloff was. This story will tell you everything you need to know. He was reliable enough, respected enough for Bruno San Martino to lose the WWF title in the garden. And, and Bruno was Bruno had the stroke, the power, and the vision to know who he's going to lose to, how he's going to do it, where he's going to do it. That's why he didn't. Bruno didn't wasn't a big fan of Superstar Billy Graham. So the the, the Superstar Billy Graham title change was done in Baltimore, not in the Garden. But for for Ivan, who was a power lifter, thick like Bruno, uh, safe, good solid hand. Uh, it was, is in the garden. So that should tell you all you need to know about the respect that Ivan Koloff had over the decades and decades of his career. What about Jack victory? We see him debut here under a mask. Uh, the angel of death is David Sheldon. And it looks like he's going to be like angel of death. Number two, Jack victory is, uh, I mean, it feels like he's been a part of wrestling my whole life. I mean, he would pop up years later in ECW and a lot of the guys really, really respect him, but as somebody yep. who grew up on, you know, the WWF, the Hulk Hogan era, I didn't know that much about Jack victory. What can you tell us about Jack? A journeyman guy that could, had a better skill set than they given credit for. Uh, you know, I got to know Jack in, uh, in mid South, 
and, and Cowboy loved him because he was versatile and he was always on time. People said, why is, that, why is that such a big, JR's always this guy's on time. Well, you know, you want your fucking airplane pilot to be on time? Well, he's not here right now. He'll be here in a few minutes. Sometimes he's late. He'll always make it though. Well, that don't fucking count. You know, we're leaving at 11 o'clock in the morning, not 1130 because the pilot didn't show up because he was having coffee with some flight attendant. Uh, it just makes no sense. Uh, but he was a reliable dude with really good skills. And I think Eddie Gilbert was one of the first guys to saw that, to see that in, uh, in Jack victory. And he, he started using Jack victory with his entourage from time to time. But good guy, Conrad, 6'3 or so, 6'4 maybe, had a big enough frame. Did he have a great body? No. He was athletic as hell. He could take good bumps, had good psychology. Uh, he was safe. He didn't hurt anybody. And again, uh, you could always set your watch on him. He was always going to be there. So he was one of those valuable guys. Again, I use baseball analogies sometimes. He might have been a, a seven or eight hole hitter. He might have been a pinch hitter. But he was always going to be on your team with a role that could contribute to the success of the team. So I, I always thought he was a underrated, sometimes underappreciated guy. He never was a squeaky wheel. And sometimes in pro wrestling, when you're not the squeaky wheel, you, should, you could damn sure become invisible. Let's talk a little bit about something else that's not invisible on the show. There's a lot of promos on the show referencing John Ayers, and he's going to be the enforcer. And that doesn't really age well, but at the time you probably would have known that John Ayers was uh, a famous football player from the San Francisco 49ers. He was a, uh, an offensive lineman who picked up a couple of rings there with Joe Montana. And I guess he finished up his career the prior year with, uh, the Denver Broncos who has this association and gets him involved with professional wrestling here. Dusty, uh, Ayers is a West Texas guy. Oh, I see. And yeah. And, uh, that was the link. And, uh, he was a, he, John Ayers, one of the nicest guys I ever encountered in wrestling. Uh, and I know, uh, Wade, uh, had some remarks to say about that, but I don't know that Wade Keller's football acumen has ever been bragged upon, but maybe it has, <laughs> uh, but he got a super bowl winning offensive guard who was six, five, you know, somewhere two sixty five, two seventy five range. Uh, very well respected in the, in the, in the league. Uh, and a friend of dusty, they hunted together and stuff like that. I, I room with John Ayers on the road on several occasions because we talked football. We liked each other. Uh, we got away from the nightlife. He didn't want to sit around and just get shitty drunk every night. Uh, you know, have another drink brother, uh, just didn't want to do it. He would drink, have beer with you, but he was a real nice man that, that dusty, uh, brought in. We. Dusty, because of his loyalty to John, probably over, over thought John's name recognition. And a lot of, we had to explain who John was more often than not, you know, so, uh, uh, but that's who that's the, that's the story on John and then trying to find roles for him. You know, anybody could be an enforcer. Megan could be an enforcer. She's your enforcer now. Yes, she is. There you go. So I need to say that as you should. Congratulations on a great answer. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but John's a nice guy. He really was. And he, so his buddy got him a gig. My God, look around wrestling right now, Conrad. How many buddies, how many guys have got their buddies jobs? 
in wrestling, and especially in this era, it is unbelievable. The jobs that talents have facilitated for their friends who are no more deserving of that job with their skill set than I am trying to qualify to ride in the goddamn Kentucky Derby. Ain't going to work. But John was a, a nice man. I, I'm glad that we did what we did with him. I got to make friends with him. I got to know him better. And he died of cancer, uh, which is sad. A big, strong, strapping guy. Kind of a John Wayne kind of a guy. Right. Big frame, kind of a lanky, kind of lanky until you get next to him. And then you find, damn, this is a big bastard. So that's that's the story on John Ayers. I, uh, and I know he got he was not looked upon favorably by the uh, the wrestling media which means nothing. Let's talk a little bit about the main event. Sting's going to beat Barry Windham by disqualification. The match lasts over 20 minutes and it was very good. Sting and Windham are both superstars and super talents. Late in the match, Sting corner splashed Windham and followed up with the Scorpion leg lock. However, the inevitable ref bump occurred as Tommy Young took the spill. JJ came in the ring with a chair sting goes after JJ. So Barry gets up and knocks sting out with a chair from behind Tommy young recovers and begins to count to three at the two count. John Ayers, the charismatic guy stopped hmm. young's arm from hitting the mat. The third time Ayers and young raised Sting's arm in victory by disqualification. And Jim Ross claimed John Ayers was six, five, 270 pounds. Yeah. Like he weighs as much as Lex Luger Ross was. Outstanding, except for now. What the blunt. fuck does that mean? Yeah, like he weighs as much as Lex Luger. Look, you goddamn idiot! Come on, you, you don't know your genres. You know, it's I did not understand that criticism of somebody that the writer, the speaker, the whatever uh, was unaware of. It just pisses you off sometimes. Think of making these loose and uh, clumsy judgments. That, that because they do have a, a, a large audience, as the torch does, he's had, he's had great success and still having it. I'm glad for him. I'm not mad at him. But, you know, I think he makes himself look bad with statements like that. And look, that's 1988. He was a lot younger, more impressionable, uh, you know, defiant kid at that time. So I'll, I'll give him that, no doubt. But, you know, come on, Conrad. Uh, he's, yeah. He weighs as much as Lex Luger. What does that even mean? You know, a lot of fucking people weigh as much as Lex Luger. And by the way, there are people that are even bigger than Lex Luger. I know I can't believe it, but it's the truth. So shit, come on. Anyway, I thought we had a, you know, that was a hard show to broadcast, but I thought we had a decent night. It's, it's interesting that, you know, we're right here at the tail end of, of the Jim Crockett run with this promotion. You know, we're just a month away from the deal closing sort of the last major show under Crockett rain, if you will. And flair's not on the card. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Of course it's weird. You find a role for him, right? Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he's there doing commentary with you and, or, or with, uh, with Tony Schiavone. And I mean, he has a spot he's on the show, but it feels like he should be in a match. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe that's me. No. Well, so you're saying that the greatest in-ring performer of all time should have a match? How dare you, <laughs> How dare you Conrad? You troublemaking bastard? Jeez. Yeah, he should have had a match. He, any match he was in, he's going to make that presentation and that segment of time better. 
with the Nates, no doubt. It's pretty so, remarkable. Uh, all the news that's going on here. You think this is the last major show really, uh, before Ted Turner. I mean, certainly the last clash of the champions. And then just a couple of days after this, less than a week after this, I think Arn and Tully are quitting and they're out of here. And yeah. Dr. Death gets arrested around this yeah. same time too. He, uh, I think he's arrested with three grams of cocaine, 22 grams of pot, two grams of mushrooms, assorted barbiturates and 240 tablets of, uh, steroids. And then like 28 injectable steroids. Yeah. Going to, going to Japan, right? He, he's your pal. This is the biggest yeah. arrest of, uh, his career but, and certainly, well, probably wrestling that year. Uh, it's, it's a big deal. And there's so much going, we'll talk about all that another time, but it's just amazing to me that this is all happening at the same time. It feels like, I don't know when it rains, it pours. Yeah. I bad decision making by my boy, you know, uh, sometimes our kids or guys that we perceive as little brothers or what have you, uh, can break our hearts because we love them and we care for them, but it doesn't make what he did right. And, uh, he, he was very lucky that, uh, the, that the Japanese folks, Mr. Bob, I think specifically as best I can recall, uh, didn't bail on him. He was, he was, he, he couldn't get back in the country for a long time, but through Mr. Baba's uh, political connections, if I'm not mistaken, Conrad timeline wise, uh, you know, he was forgiven and given a second chance, but it was not a, it was a stupid move and doc was impressionable and you know, the, the bodies were all. Everybody was a body conscious deal. Uh, and I don't know, it, just, it was in the beginning, everybody experimental things, this steroid, that steroid, this, uh, HGH, whatever the shit was. And, uh, it became, uh, lucky well, like mentioned, or I think Wade mentioned that Nikita was jacked up. Well, that was just, again, that was a sign of those times, not a good sign, but the sign of the times there. So, uh, I talked to doc a lot through that situation. And he was, he was remorseful. He, he, he did have re regrets of a bad decision. I said, man, you just got to live it down and keep yourself clean. So, uh, I, I know, uh, Bill was cowboy was very disappointed as well. He was our guy. We loved him, the big bastard. And I still love him. I don't love him any less because he got busted. Right. Uh, you know, uh, I, he just, you, you can't bail on your friends that way, folks, because they have a bump in the road. Doesn't mean you got to get out of the vehicle. Come on. So, uh, yeah, it was, I'll tell you this, Albany, I think Albany, Georgia, back to Atlanta where I was living, I want to say it was about a three hour drive, something like that, a longer drive than you'd want to make after doing a live, you know, live show and, and, uh, but leaving that building, hearing all the stories hear this guy's sad story, this guy's pissed off story, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to stay. I don't know what's going to happen. Boy, that was a long drive home. Yeah. A long drive home because it just, this huge black cloud was over our careers and we weren't sure what the end result was going to be. I and mean, it might've been Turner says, you know, I'm not going to do wrestling at all. I'll put some John Wayne movies on, or I'll do an Andy Griffith thing or something. Uh, I don't or movies. I got all these movies. I bought this movie library. I've colorized these films, et cetera, et cetera. Hell, I'll just run gone with the wind every week or whatever. I'm being facetious, but you never knew it could be, it could be that way. Right. And, and eventually 
at Time Warner did that. We're out of the wrestling business. We're done. So, because wrestling in general, folks, in case you guys haven't noticed and you're in being a fan, which I thank God you are, it's, uh, it's not universally popular with some of the, uh, white shirt, red tie, blue collar guys or blue, blue jacket guys. It's below them. It's beneath them, which always I thought was a sign of personal weakness. And the fact that indeed your nuts would fit into a thimble very easily. It's just not good. So, uh, but it was a long drive home because the uncertainty, the attitude in the building, the attitude in the locker room had changed so much from when I first went there. It, it was like a night and day. It wasn't even like the same place. Uh, so it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. And the unknown sometimes is a big enemy to us. We don't know what's happening and we're worried about our future and all these things. And I was trying to keep, I was trying to start over, man. I'm coming off a bad marriage. I got a child and I got two children, two little girls. And you know, dads are close to little girls, Conrad, you know that. Sure. So, you know, I'm feeling guilty anyway. And now this is the answer. What am I going to do? Go back to Oklahoma. I could go back and do some radio or sell some ads and which I did successfully. It's not what I wanted to do. I was doing what I wanted to do, but I didn't know on that drive home how much longer I was going to have the chance to do that. So it was a, it was a tough time in my life. And, and I, and these memories come flooding back. I know this show is not about me. I get that. And I appreciate that by the way, but I just remember these things that, oh my God, I thought about this and oh, oh, I remember that. And you know, I was just glad I was renting and that's not the goal you want is the, you want to be a homeowner and own things own real estate's a great investment. Hence my, I'm, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, Conrad, uh, as this show airs drops, I'm moving tomorrow. I'm moving to my condo on the beach tomorrow. And I've always, as a kid, little fat kid in Eastern Oklahoma, I had a, we had water in our place. It was called a pond and I, I fished in it with a cane pole and a red and yellow, uh, uh, floater. Uh, and I always wanted to live on the, on the beach. I always wanted to be, uh, I want to experience the life of like Hawaii five Oh or something, you know? And I thought that was so in, in impossible for that to happen. And thanks to the wrestling business and thanks for not going, just keep driving on those trips from Albany to Atlanta. I've been able to facilitate that. I only wish Jan was here to enjoy it with me, but the bottom line, she is in spirit. I get that. And I appreciate that. But, uh, it's been a hell of a journey, man. And, uh, I, the only thing, you know, the one, one of the great piece of advice, Dusty told me one time, uh, sooner you turn your Jersey and you can't play on the team. And I've thought about that all these years. I, I just don't want to turn my Jersey in until somebody, the bigger power than the booker, uh, tells me that my time is up. Well, that's not going to be anytime soon. Uh, certainly not next week because we're going to be back doing another grilling Jr. this time paying homage to one of the all time greats, the one and only Bobby, the brain Heenan. This is going to be fun talking about your old pal, Bobby. Is it not? Oh yeah. The, the greatest all round performer that I ever worked with, he could do more things great than anybody I ever worked with. And to be honest with you, uh, my, my my longtime partner, Jerry Lawler, 
who, by the way, uh, is getting ready to celebrate his 50th year in the wrestling business uh, this month in Jackson, Tennessee. And uh, I'm going to be there uh, to help celebrate that for him at the, they got a big event. And uh, here's the deal, Conrad, this little tip for you. If you could look online and you see the, the uh, odds on uh, the winners and losers, the, the betting odds, I take Lawler in the points at his retirement match in Jackson for his 50th anniversary. I don't even know who he's working with, but I bet you he gets a, he pulls a strap down. I bet he goes over and the crowd will leave happy. And so I will say, Oh, that's so predictable. Get over yourself. Right. Come on. So, uh, but Lawler and Heenan were at one and one a far as wrestling, managing, talking, commentary, color, baby face, heel, all those things. Uh, Heenan got so damn funny that he was hard to dislike. He did. How could you, how could you, he was just too funny. He, uh, and you, you realize what I said all along, if the heel, I'm a heel, God damn it. But Dennis and Bobby, if I'm a heel and I, uh, make you laugh, I entertain you. It's very challenging for me to dislike you. Right. And Heenan got to that level. So funny, so timely, uh, just amazing. And I imagine we'll have a chocolate cake story or two here to talk about next week. Should be fun. And I love Bobby. And, uh, I tell you that my heart was never broken more when I saw him for the first time after his tongue cancer and how he looked and, and, and his spirit still making appearances with, with his wife, Cindy and helping him out. And God damn, it's just, it was oh, gut wrenching, just gut wrenching. Cause I knew the guy, you know, Hey, before days of cell phones, I'll tell the story next week better, but more, more defined. He used to call my house cause we'd have cell phones and Jan would answer. <clears throat> and of course she was flight attendant. So he'd whisper, Hey, uh, this is the 25 D you really looked hard in the flight today. Touch shit like that. Right. And she didn't know who it was in the beginning. She did in the very beginning, but he would do an obscene prank call and he was always 25 D. So, uh, uh, Jan would say, how is 25 D tonight or whatever? Oh, he's good. Funny. So Bobby's story should be great. And he's got an amazing legacy. You know, he, he said one time, he said, my biggest claim to fame that got me in the business was I didn't mind going and buying rats for Dick, the bruiser's snakes and are buying the bruiser milk, big bottles of milk. He drank a whole gallon of milk or something ridiculous. So Bobby started out with Dick as Dick, the bruiser's runner, Aaron boy, are you a satin or an errand boy? And that's what he was. He, he learned the ropes from the, uh, the uh, from the ground floor up. There's nobody. Look, go back and look at the YouTube stuff. Find a better heel that fed a better comeback. Took bigger bumps, real looking, realistically looking bumps. And that's Bobby. So we're going to have a lot of fun talking about the brain, uh, here, uh, next week. I can't wait. should be a lot, a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it too. He's one of the all time greats. And by the way, I want to put a bug in your ear. You could have gotten this show early and ad free. Had you joined us over at adfreeshows.com. And we should also mention, this is a reminder, this show in particular, but don't ever judge a book by its cover. I know a lot of our listeners do selective listening based on what the topic is. So you may have looked up clash of the champions three and said, 
oh, I don't really want to hear about that show. There was so much more on this show. The whole Crockett sale, the horseman leaving, Flair maybe tiptoeing out, what was going on with Dusty's booking, the loan from Ted Turner, so much stuff. So do us a favor, uh, tweet out how much you enjoyed the show and all the other little stories that piled around this particular event, Clash of the Champions 3. Bobby Heenan is next, but before you get there, join us at adfreeshows.com and fire up that grill because you need some of JR's barbecue sauce. It's jrsbbq.com. Uh, Jim, I know we're, we're different on this. I'm a charcoal guy. You're a gas guy. But in the end, we're slathering it up with the same sauce. Damn right, baby. I appreciate that, Conrad. I'm glad that you, because you know barbecue. You're an Alabaman. There's great barbecue in Alabama. The South is known for barbecue, low and slow. Uh, we all love our sauces. Mine is motivated by my, the memory of my mother and my, and Jan. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a special thing for me, but jrsbarbecue.com, we're, we'll ship it out to you. I mean, we turn these orders around like 24 hours when the stuff is in stock. We ran out of all purpose seasoning, but we're back in stock with it. It's, it's, it's found its home and people love it. Same thing than the mustard before that we were out of mustard for a while. We're doing our best to keep our inventories up and buying as much as we can get the manufacturer to make and get in our warehouse. So I appreciate everybody's business. It's always grilling season. You eat, if you grill, you eat healthier. And I believe that that's, if you can eat healthier, it's still with great taste and it tastes good and everything's cool. That's what you should do. So it's always grilling season around my house. Uh, and, uh, I'll be, I may be firing up my little grill, uh, in my new place this weekend and giving it a dry run and, and, and inaugurating, uh, my place with a, uh, a little, little one-on-one grill there. So, and then maybe someday Conrad, I'll, you'll be here and I'll cook for you. Hey, I'm down. I would love to do that. And, and we'll have to uh, film some of that too, and throw it on social. People need to see more video of you grilling, see the grill master in action, but you're going to hear the grill master next week talking about Bobby Heenan. But before you do, Cruise on over, pick up your sauce to finish out the summer just right. And it'll be at your house just in time for football. Knock on wood. Hope you heard that. That's jrsbbq.com. And don't forget while you're there, if you haven't already, you can pick up the brand new book under the black hat. It's been critically acclaimed, uh, well on its way to being one of the all time great wrestling books. Don't take my word for it. Look up any review. And when you buy it from jrsbbq.com, you get a personalized autograph from you, right, Jim? Yeah. We're still doing that offer. It, I said, well, we'll do it for a while until it kind of runs out and people stop, stop buying it. They haven't stopped buying it. It's a great gift idea. Think about it for the holidays. Even I know we're a long way from the holidays, but a lot of folks are already starting to plan what they're going to give for the holidays to the wrestling fan, your family, or for birthdays, uh, the holidays, as I mentioned, whatever anniversaries, I have a lot of women coming on our site and buying the book. Uh, and having me inscribe something that relates back to their marriage, to their wrestling fan husband. And so there's a lot of cool and it's personalized. It's real. I sign them. It's not stamped on. And, uh, and I've, I've signed some damn good things. And the irony of this, thanks to this show, the more people are asking for something involving the word push <laughs> and, the, and the signature. So are in the autograph. So I, I'm, I'm very blessed with that deal. It's been a lot of fun. So jrsbarbecue.com and, and, uh, we'll take good care of you. I promise that if we don't let us know and we will fix it. No doubt. We'd love to have your interaction too. You can ask a question for next week's show at JR grilling on Twitter. 
until next time he is at jr's bbq on twitter i am at hey hey it's conrad and we are out of time we'll see you next week right here on grilling jr with the voice of wrestling mr jim ross heavy on the mr brother john brings his skewed sense of humor jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.